I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Tom, would you like to kick this off? Yeah, absolutely. Carlos, welcome aboard, and thanks again for joining us. You and I chatted for quite a while last night, and you had an encounter kind of in uh, in my neck of the woods. So, um, But you've had actually more than one encounter with these things, but I'd like to start off with that first one. And actually, I'm just going to hand the mic to you, and you know, you can just start from the beginning. But it's an open forum; just uh, we'll take it from there, and whatever, whichever direction it goes. Okay. Well, uh, thank you guys, and uh, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to to come on and share my experience. But yeah, so you know, I was uh, probably my mid to late twenties when my first encounter took place and um i was on a vacation um i had just uh, left a job and i thought hey, you know what better thing to do than to go back to the pacific northwest go all the way up to washington and you know we were just me and my girlfriend at the time we were driving from campground to campground and it was just kind of one of those trips where it was just kind of free you know no destination you know, nothing in mind. And um, along the way, uh, you know, we were driving through the Cascades. And um, while we were up there, you know, camping and doing all that, um, we decided to take the scenic route out of the Cascades down to, uh, I guess, mid-Oregon out there to continue our journey up north. And, uh, you know, we were doing like, I guess the, the typical tourist thing, you know, cause it, it's so beautiful up there. And I, I was mentioning that, you know, you see the greenest greens and the bluest blues, you know, different hues for the water and, and, the, and the trees and the bark and all It was just very, very scenic. So we were driving and as we're, we're driving, I was looking for vantage points where I could pull off the road and walk over to the edge, you know, of the road, sometimes a cliff, sometimes not, but to take pictures and get kind of like, um, you know, perspective of nature and whatnot. And uh, so we were doing that, and in one stop, and, and it was, uh, it was in, in a campground, um, we pulled off the road, and as we were pulling off the road, I don't know if you're familiar with, with the area, you, you can pull off the road and then you can pull back onto the road. It's sort of like a like a side lane almost, but it's dirt in the trees. Not really, a, not really a, a like an access road, but just like a dirt road. But um, in this particular spot, 
uh, when we pulled out, uh, there was no break in the trees or no trail or any you know, any real opportunity to to get out and see what was going on, you know, get any kind of pictures or anything like that. So, so as I'm as I'm as I pull out and I see that there's nothing there, um, you know, I'm just kind of like staring and. I start to motion the car, you know, kind of turn the wheel slightly uh, to head back towards the road. I'm, I'm still kind of driving towards where the trees are. And as I turn to the left, I, was, I mean, I'm going very, very slow. Um, I sensed that something was looking at me. And I'm not really that kind of, you know, touchy-feely, you know, um, intuitive kind of person, but this was... A, pretty strong sensation and uh so my window's down right and i kind of look straight you know and, and i'm getting that feeling and uh in my peripheral vision um i saw what was a very quick very slight but very definite movement and you know, when you see something like that, like a like a bird twitching, or like a like a cat that, you know, moves and realizes you see it and it's you know it's just perfectly still. And you look and you don't see the movement, but you saw it out of your peripheral. That's that's what I experienced. I, you know, I get the sensation. You know, I I kind of like look a little bit straight ahead, and then I see that movement and I look. And when I looked. Um, you know, for for the first glance, you know, the first glance, the first second, I, I didn't really see anything. Um, but you know, I'm letting the car roll a little bit, and uh, I I experienced that parallax kind of effect. You know, where something in the in the background, you know, and in, in between you and the background, you, you see that kind of. Uh, differentiation of position of objects and that's that's how I saw it as, as I moved I got that parallax effect and the first thing I saw was that there was a creature um, the head and the shoulders and there was sitting between a Douglas fir with really red red bark and um, in you know in, in those trees, sometimes at the base you get like that shrub chaparral. I'm not sure you know what to call it, but I mean it's just like you know green shrubs. And it was sitting between the shrubs and the in the tree. But I, I I saw its head, and then as as I inched a little bit more, because I mean I'm just barely barely lifting my foot off the brake, and as I saw it, I kind of froze myself, and I'm just kind of barely rolling. I mean I'm not even talking. A foot a second. I'm just talking, just barely creep, you know, creeping by. And when I saw it, um, I saw its head. All right, um, and the the head was kind of sunken in below the shoulder line. And the first thing I noticed is that it was all one color except for the face. The, the face had like, um, and I describe this to you as being like a simian kind of look. Mongoloid kind of, you know, almond kind of eyes, but big, dark, um, you know, uh, just from that glance, I, I saw the mouth. Uh, the mouth was kind of, it just looked like a, you know, straight, 
you know, line, I guess, between the lips. Uh, and, and as I saw that, I, I looked into it into its eyes. And it, for that split second when I first saw it, and it was looking in my direction, and we made eye contact. And I get the chills <laughs> thinking about it, but we we made eye contact just for that for that brief second, and and I'm still rolling a little bit. And as I'm rolling, it it is absolutely perfectly still. I mean, just like a statue, like a wooden carving. I mean, it's not moving whatsoever. But now that now that I'm rolling forward a little bit the definition of its body is coming more into into focus i guess you could say um so now i'm noticing that it's got wide shoulders and um you know but you know i i was probably like 15 feet away or so and then you know and, and i kind of got the impression that it was as wide or maybe a little bit wider than a doorway you know four feet wide around there um, I could see that the proportions uh, of the face were different, uh, you know. And I, you know, and I, and I said yesterday that you know, big eyes uh, and the nose and the mouth were just different. You know, I, I want to say that they were probably more. Um, there was more space between the nose and the mouth, and you know, and that's why I'm thinking Simeon kind of like ape kind of but human kind of stare so as i'm rolling uh, i also see that it's crouched down um like a catcher say like a you know in a baseball game on its you know on its haunches kind of uh and its arms were draped i never saw its feet um but I did see its arms drape over, and it just had this uniform color. And as you know, now I'm getting like a, a 3D kind of perspective on it. Um, I'm rolling, and I could see that it's it's lean. You know, it, it's not. I mean, it it looked big. It looked you know wide, and it looked like you know if if I, I was in this uh, Toyota mini truck with a with a shell on it, so. It was definitely taller um, than, like, if I would have gotten out and stood up, I still would not have been at its height. And even if I would have got up there, it, it looked like it was probably as tall as me while it was, you know, sitting up, you know, uh, down, crouched down. Uh, it was just, you know, I'm looking up at that, up at this thing. But it just looked lean, and, and I described it like um, – like a football player or a linebacker, you know, someone who just shoulders wide, arms, never saw its waist, but I, I could just tell that it just had this definition, very lean definition, you know, just just lean. Um, and uh, as you know, as as I'm as I'm rolling by and I'm seeing this, I mean, again, I, it, it's perfectly still, perfectly still, and once I rolled past it, um, you know, now I'm like at, you know, at it's like, uh, I would say like at it's 11 o'clock moving to the 10 o'clock position, nine o'clock is I'm, I'm circling around getting back into towards the, towards the highway. Um, 
I'm just looking at it and I'm and I'm thinking to myself, you know, w- what am I saying? You know, and it, and it's weird because it's it uh, I I got the sensation that it, it it's alive, it's a creature. Um, I don't know what it is, but uh, you know, all these thoughts are coming into my head. My girlfriend is sitting there in the car, right? And as this is happening, I completely isolated myself from reality. <laughs> you know, there was I mean, I'm just staring at this thing. It's only a few seconds, but it seemed like an eternity. It's just making, I'm, I'm like taking in all this information and it's just like compressed in my mind as I'm getting it because I'm having all these thoughts. Forgot about my girlfriend, but as I'm coming around, I turn around and uh, she had like these big eyes and she's staring at the, at the, at the, at the thing. You know, it, it's now, you know, literally at her, you know, on our left-hand side. And I go, did you? And she goes, uh-huh. And I go, what was that? And and she goes, I don't know. I go, did we see Bigfoot? And, and she's just like, I don't know. And, and I could tell that it was just like completely just a, a moment of shock and awe. We were just, you know, both surprised. And, and I suggested, hey, let's go back there. And she's like, no way. You know, in in a more colorful way. She's like, no way. You know, let's get the, you know, what out of here. And we took off. But that moment, gentlemen, um, it it changed my life. Um, You know, uh, all of a sudden, you know, I felt like, you know, something very unique, very different had happened. Um, You know, and from that from that point forward, I, you know, I, I've relived this moment many times in my mind, uh, day after day, you know, week, month, years, uh, I've relived this moment because it, 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 it made such an impression on me. Um, you know, the, 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 the mass that I saw, I mean, if, if you saw, if you saw someone sitting in, you know, in, in that area, like normal person, you know, and crouch down, you know, you would be able to tell that it's a, a person. And even if they were like in some kind of suit, you know, the, the proportions of the body were completely different. It was, it had big, massive shoulders. The head was in the wrong position. Uh, the head did look kind of conical as, as I was turning, you know, kind of a pointy head. But the position of the head was below the shoulder line. And it was, you know, if it had not twitched, if it had not twitched at all, I would not have seen it. I probably would have had that same sensation, but it was the movement that almost like a like a bird when it just you know just looks really quick and you know they move their head so fast, so slight, so controlled. That's what caught my attention, you know, and that's when I saw it. Um, but it was perfectly blended in. Um, I would not have seen it, and you know, and, and it was just such a such a moment in my life that, you know, um, it, it just created a, a desire to know, you know, what I was looking at. Um, and, and this is about 91. And, uh, you know, as I guess you could say more information became available, uh, through the internet and whatnot, uh, I started looking at everything, you know, trying to learn as much as I uh, I could about these things, but 
I'll, I'll never forget that moment. It was, it was absolutely uh, just, it, it, it took me out of my, you know, what I felt comfortable with <laughs> knowing that existed, you know, I, I, I didn't know what I was looking at, but yet I knew what it was. Um, and, and as I told Tom yesterday, I, you know, I, I fall into two groups, you know, I know they exist, you know, I know they do, uh, and I don't know what it is, but I know that they're out there and, and I have no idea why, uh, it, it moved, uh, maybe because I was rolling so slow, almost, you know, just about to stop. Then I turned my my wheels, and then I just kind of let go of the brake, and I just moved, and I I just kind of pivoted on the road. Maybe, you know, maybe it was just hyper focused and thought that you know uh, I wouldn't move, and it was going to move. I, I don't know, but the moment I started rolling back on and it twitched, that's when I saw it, and that was just, uh, yeah, it was just that moment that. You know, I think, wow, you know, my life, you know, I, I went down this path, you know, trying to find out everything I could about these creatures from that point forward. If that had never happened, I, I, would, I would have never, you know, uh, you know, had this passion about finding out more about them or anything like that. It just would have been another day in the woods. <laughs> but that's you know, what happened. Carlos, the, the one thing is two things, actually, that you said that. um really resonate with me and I know they resonate with Will when you see it when you become aware when you have that moment um, kind of your whole worldview is I don't want to say challenged but it certainly expanded right it, it evolved instantly correct yeah it sure did and then you you talked about thinking about it daily and it's I, I don't know daily, but but frequently. And I know that I rarely does a day go by that I don't think about um, the experiences that I've had with this topic. It's it it just it sticks with you. It's the first thing I think of in the morning. The last thing when I think of at night, quite often. You know, sometimes I'll go. You know, I don't do that, but for the most part, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. I think my worldview was out the window. <laughs> right well it well it, it did you, you, you know and, and i mentioned that this happened back in 91 you know I, I was a kid you know still in college and all that um but there was no one to talk to about it um really and and i think that's it, i i was left with a, a desire to know more but yet um not there wasn't any really hope that I could go somewhere and talk to anyone or share my experience without being ridiculed. Right. And there was a couple of times where I, I did try to mention it to some of my closest friends at the time. Uh, but they laughed and, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, what were you smoking? And I was like, you know, and and it's frustrating because having that, in my mind and then you know not being able to talk to anyone i mean i could have talked to my girlfriend but she just wasn't the type that you know that wanted to talk about it i think she was more scared than anything and she never ever wanted to revisit that 
encounter um, that experience. It, no matter how hard I tried, she just said, nope, nope. She's had nightmares about it, and she just dealt with it completely different. Um, so, you know, that's why I say I thought about it for so long because I, I really did. I, I wanted to go back up there. Um, I wanted to know more about it because I, I just felt like all of a sudden, you know, things that I've heard, you know, um, and I mentioned that, you know, I, I grew up, you know, in the 70s and 80s and there was, you know, in search of and all these documentaries, uh, but they were nowhere near enough. Once you see one, you, you know, you look at some of these old reports and, you know, old shows and you think, wow, you know, I know so much more about it now. You know, those shows just kind of didn't really even come close to serving the need that I had about finding out more. And, 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 and with me, with the way I think, the way I am, um, you know, I, I try to think things through and try to rationalize. And it just didn't make sense. It, it just, you know, how can these things exist? You know, how can how can they have a breeding population, not just, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, but across the U.S.? How can they how can they exist? And everyone's either lying or they're in denial. You know, uh, I, I just don't get it. And, you know, the more I dug into this, the more I realized that for whatever reason, it's just something that is taboo in our society, uh, but they exist. And you know, um, you know, some of the you know um, Native American and First Peoples tribes in the Northwest have written about this, and, and they've made it part of their lore, and they've got costumes and totem poles, and you know, they're all these different names, and you know, you know, they name areas you know because uh, when i think of creek devil i think of you know <laughs> other places that are named accordingly because of lore and legend and and it just started you know as, I, as i'm thinking about this something you know it's like something needs to happen where we find out the truth um you know as a society but i don't know that we're ever going to get there but i do know that they're out there I, I just don't, it just doesn't fit in my mind how they can exist without everyone coming to terms with it and agreeing that they exist. It's just, well, it, I want to touch on that some more in a moment. And, and actually, we're going to talk about, because this isn't the only encounter that you had, but no. just touching on the um, reaction and why people react the way they do, because I've, you know, I've talked about it to, um, people that I know, even at family reunions, you know, some family members, um, there's a visceral rejection and they're like immediately they want nothing. They, they want to distance themselves from it and they get angry. No, that thing doesn't exist. And, and, and I don't know if it has to do with the silliness uh, that the media has treated the topic or, you know, so now if, if you agree with it, you somehow have to be in that camp of being a uh, foolish person or something. I, <clears throat> I'm not sure what it is. I, maybe it's something like that, but it's frustrating because I've had people say the same thing to me. Well, gosh, were you, were you chewing peyote when you saw this <laughs> and on all that kind of silly stuff? Um, and, 
it's uh, it is frustrating because basically what they're saying is you're a liar, and what you're telling me is a lie, and I'm not going to believe it, and and so they're calling your credibility and your character into question, which is pretty aggravating, right? It is. It, it's insulting, you know. Um, I, I, you know, Tom. Well, I, I pride myself in being, you know, uh, rational and articulate. And, uh, you know, I've, you know, it's okay to mention this. I, I'm an engineer, um, you know, and, and I have a graduate degree. You know, I, I have taught at a university at one time, you know, um, but I've worked for, you know, the government and um, large firms and, you know, people pay me for my ability to analyze, design, manage, drive things, and you know, and get results. And you know, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back on that, but I mean, what I'm trying to say is, I know what I saw. You know, and, and there's 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 absolutely zero gain for me to, to go out and and fabricate something like this. You know, and it is frustrating because, you know, I remember one time. Um, a college friend of mine, um, I told him, I go, these things exist. He's like, how do you know? I was like, because I've seen you. And he goes, and immediately he jumped back to the Hieronymus thing. He's like, oh, yeah, well, wasn't that a guy in a in an ape suit? And he starts laughing. And I was just like, there's no way. Yeah, I mean, that was back in, you know, the 60s, you know. And this is now, and that guy's not waiting for people still, you know. And, you know, it, and I know more about those situations. And I know I absolutely, you know, in my opinion, it, you, know, you know, he wasn't everywhere. <laughs> and he definitely wasn't there when I rolled by that particular place. But um, he yeah, wasn't there, so was he? <laughs> no. <laughs> and and it's, it is so frustrating yeah. to have people bring that up or any other silly tabloid um you know excuses or reasons that they don't exist and and you know like you said it's insulting to call your question into character and I, at some point i i'm almost like you know some of these people it's like i've got two words for you they're not thank you <laughs> you know it's, it's very frustrating <laughs> well here's here's a point um you know, you saw you saw one. I've seen the creatures. When somebody comes along that's never seen anything, how is it that their opinion has more weight than yours or mine, who've actually seen the things? Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's uh, it, they're not they're not really being rational about their statements, calling you, you know, or me or whoever irrational. You're right. It doesn't make sense. You weren't there. You didn't see what I saw. And, you know, your uh, dismissal to make it sound like, it were, you know, I was imagining thing, imagining something. Yeah, it's definitely insulting because I know I didn't imagine that. And, you know, and it would be one thing. And this is something I've always said. You know, it's like, you know, well, my girlfriend was there and she saw it and it changed her life, too, in, in kind of in a negative sense, you know, not. You know, not that she went spiraling out of control, but I mean, she did not want to talk about it and she did not want to go camping anymore. 
you know, and I was just like, okay. And I understand. Yeah, she didn't. She didn't want to engage. Uh, it was it was scary to her, and I think it was just her her like a defense mechanism, self preservation. You know. Um, so yeah. this isn't the only experience that you've had. Um, what are what's another one? What's the other one that you you were talking about? Because that was pretty fascinating as well. <laughs> yeah. So. I've taken it seems like you know this has happened on vacations and <laughs> and I'll be honest it has because um I, I like to go hunting um and I was out in Texas um out in the central part of Texas more in the in the green plains area um and I was you know, I drove there because, you know, you're driving with hunting equipment, you know, uh, you know, rifle, ammunition, that kind of stuff. So I'm driving and uh, I was scouting out areas to go hunting and I, you know, had actually finished uh, a session of hunting. So I, I was looking for the next spot to go hunting. Um, and I, I pulled into the ranger station and, uh, they, you know, you, you get maps there and kind of ask the, the ranger about some of the areas. And, you know, we were talking and, and I was saying, hey, so I'm looking for, um, you know, national forest land sections. Uh, out in Texas, sometimes you get areas where you have private property kind of in the same area intermingled with certain sections of um, forest or or land that's not owned, you know, m most of the land in Texas is owned. So you get very, very little sections um, that are not, uh, not private property, but sometimes they're like the, the back lines of properties, but up against, you know, ravines and trees and that kind of stuff that don't really belong to anyone. They're part of the national forest. So I was looking for those sections in that particular area, knowing that hogs, tend to go into the into the ravine um you know little canyons and they kind of go halfway up and they kind of burrow in um but at the same time you know I, I was thinking to myself you know and this looks like there there'd be an area where if if i was a creature you know i would probably be able to as we put it yesterday right cover and conceal have access to properties and then I started looking for any kind of water and I saw that there was a pond so I'm asking the ranger so how do I find this road and they're not giving me directions right you go down the highway you got to be careful you know between this highway and this highway there's a you know like a break in the trees and if you look carefully there's a little marker there that says you know it's root you know so and so and because you you take that and, you know, you go down and you get to a campground and whatnot. So I, I'm, you know, saying, okay, thank you. And take my map, go. And I, I found this road. So I'm turning to this road and it's it's basically a, a dirt road coming off of a state route. And it was probably about two miles, I, I'd say. And uh, so I get to the end of this and there's like a little campsite. And uh, so I, and I'm I'm now uh, I took this trip with with my uh, ex-wife 
she so she was with me and, um so she's getting out i'm getting out and you know i have i i was carrying a sidearm too so get out of the car and i'm starting to holster my weapon and there was a guy sitting there uh and he was kind of friendly and he was like talking to me hey what you doing and i'm just like hey, i'm just gonna go hiking is okay and he's telling me, yeah, he goes, I stay here. And I guess the guy stays in a campground when he runs out of money to pay for hotels. I guess he's quasi-homeless, right? Stays in the hotel, and then when he runs out of money, he goes in camp. So he was telling me that, and you know, and I felt bad for the guy. And I was like, hey, so I'm going to go for a while. I go, would you watch my car, give you some money? And he was like, yeah, sure, no problem. So I give him some money, and, and I start walking into the forest now it i had the map and i knew my position so um i start you know with the compass kind of doing uh you know some hiking with uh, plotted segments checking my compass because it, the the trees there in that area are super thick as soon as you walk into the tree line 30 or 40 50 feet you can look back and you don't see anything except trees so you know i've, I've hunted in this area and i you know i've done hiking all my life and you know, the last thing I want to do is get lost or have a bad experience. So I'm I'm walking and I'm just I see that there's a little ravine and I know that there's a, a pond at the end of that. So I'm kind of walking towards the ravine and then I'm walking along the ravine and just you know, making my way down there. So I'd say about a half a mile. I finally I finally get to the pond and um you know, as I get to the pond, I'm looking around going, okay, so which way now? And I I look uh, at the water line, and, and, and the pond, it, just to give you some reference, it, it had to have been like maybe like uh, 60, 70 feet at the widest by like about 30 or 40 feet. It's basically, um, you know, a collection of where the little ravines from the, from the areas kind of collect and they just, you know kind of fill up the pond there so i'm looking at it and then as as i look carefully i saw footprints and i thought to myself no way and so i walk over to where the footprints are and, and so th the footprints were coming from the opposite direction of where i was headed and it looked like they kind of skewed towards the pond a little bit and then went back into the wooded line. And then they, they went back in the direction of where I had just come from. But they they were not along the tangent line that I was walking, but they were off to the side a little bit. But as I'm looking at these, I'm taking it all in, I, there was three sets of footprints. Um, they all had kind of the same basic configuration. There was, you could see the definite heel definite toes um the small one was probably probably closer to my size i have like a size nine or something like that but you know just you could see there was no shoe it's just a, you know a heel and toes um and along the side there was a slightly bigger one or i mean i'm sorry substantially bigger but just you know kind of thicker and again, toes. And then I saw a huge one. Um, and I remember putting 
uh, my boots together, and it was it wasn't as big as two of my boots, but it was probably pretty close. I I'm gonna say that probably uh, 17, 18 inches uh, from toe to heel. And th- they were spaced out, um, I'm going to say probably four feet, maybe more. Um, in terms of cadence, you know, I I would not be able to, to, to walk like that comfortably. Um, the, the one that had the smaller cadence was the one with the smaller prints, which made sense. So I'm looking at these and I'm thinking, you know, okay. So I didn't see what made them. You know, I know these things exist. I, you know, I, I believe that there's a breeding population uh, spread out throughout the U.S. I you know, absolutely have come to uh, accept that as fact. Um, but I'm looking at these thinking, okay, you know, it's not, you know, it, it, it can't be just people walking out there without shoes that far into the brush i mean you know from walking from the little campground to that pond was absolutely rugged you know um you know lots of leaves and twigs and there's snakes and there's a million insects you know just in the step you know in the path that i took you know if you're walking barefoot you're gonna get chiggers you're gonna get every kind of biting insect not to mention mosquitoes the size of hummingbirds you know, they're just, they're everywhere. So, you know, you, you wear clothing, you know, uh, really to, to protect yourself from the bugs. And no one that I know of would think about walking out there barefoot, you know, in a, in a sustained walk out there. And so all these things are going through my head. And I'm thinking, okay, so I'm going to follow these um, these footprints and uh, in, go in the direction of where they came. My thinking was, if I go there, I'll see where they come from, you know, and I'll come back later or whatever, you know, because I only saw them walk in one direction. Um, so I, I start walking, you know, and I'm kind of guessing because, in, as I mentioned, they came out of the wood line towards the water, then back into the wood line. So I'm walking towards uh, towards the wood line, just kind of, you know, extending the line, uh, the, the path of where they you know, it went to the pond. And so I get to the top of the bank and I go over that and I walk, I don't know, 50, 60 feet, something like that. And um, I mentioned that I'm, I'm plotting my steps, right? So I'm walking and then I'm checking, walking, checking. Um, and I stopped and I had that same sensation that something was looking at me. Um, and, it, you know, I, I've rarely ever felt that. Um, you know, I, I can't think of, you know, maybe a handful of times that I've had that in my life. Um, but this was a definite, you know, feeling of being watched. And as, as I realized that I was having that feeling, I had that, that rush, almost like deja vu kind of rush, uh, you know, because, you know, I felt like the hair, you know, on the back of my neck and, you know, goosebumps. And I, I just kind of, I'm looking in that direction and I realized that 
there wasn't a sound from any animal or insect or anything. It was absolutely, completely quiet, like a vacuum type of quietness. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I felt so small, you know, because it was so quiet. I, I could feel the breeze, but that's about it. It was it was just absolutely quiet. And then I felt and, and or heard like a very guttural, um, like, uh, like, uh, almost like a, uh, you know, like a, like a, like something out there, uh, you know, kind of like, almost like frustrated or exclamating like, you know, from breath or maybe saw, you know, just kind of like, uh, you know, but I, 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 I can't say I heard it alone. I, 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 I think I felt it more than I heard it, but I definitely felt it. You know, and it was just, it was bizarre. And I, I kind of got the, the, the feeling that I shouldn't be there. Um, I, I don't know how else to describe it. Uh, my ex-wife, uh, was next to me and, you know, we're having a dialogue about all this, you know, quietly, but, when we stopped and it was quiet and I look at her and, you know, she's looking straight ahead and she told me, let's, let's get out of here. And I'm like, okay. So we start walking back and now I'm following the footsteps in their course of travel. And, uh, I decided to head back, um, uh, following the footsteps. So now I'm walking back the way I came but just in a different tangent line, uh, you know, maybe 20 feet away from where I had come down along the ravine, but just, you know, in, in more away from the ravine. And now I'm seeing footsteps every so often, impressions in some of the, the soft, you know, mossy kind of substrate. Um, nothing as clear as what I saw in the, in the sandy portion of it. But, Definitely, you know, uh, I was seeing the bigger ones. I didn't see the smaller ones um, after we got through the wood line, but I did see the bigger one and the and the medium sized one. And again, the, you know, I would see it and then not, you know, for a few feet and maybe one here, one there, and, you know, and I saw them. So uh, as I was walking out, and then I lost track of them. <laughs> I lost track of the tracks. Right, I lost them. Um, uh, as I as I made my way closer and closer to um, where I was parked, so um, I finally got to the campground, and you know, and we didn't talk uh, about this, but you know, we're like, okay, so we'll, let, let's let's get in the car, let's get out of here, and then, you know, we'll talk because I, I, you know. I didn't even think about asking her to go back in there because we were already there, you know, and it's just, I just wanted to get out of there. I'd, it made an impression on me, like whatever it was, it didn't want me there. And that noise that I heard was like someone saying, man, why is this person coming? It's like, yeah, you know, frustration. So I was like, man, I'm not going to, I'm not going to stick around. So anyways, so we get back to the car and that guy's still there. And uh, he goes, hey, you're back. And I'm like, yeah. And so I gave him a couple more dollars. I go, thank you so much, you know, and I appreciate you, you know, 
keeping an eye on my car. And he's like, sure, no problem. He goes, hey, you got to be careful back there. And I was like, oh, he goes, yeah. He goes, uh, he goes, there was a, he goes, uh, I was, you know, I, I was, I think he said like the night before, two nights ago, he goes, uh, a panther came out of there uh, while I was sleeping. You know, and I was like, oh, and tell me, what do you mean? And he's like, yeah, he goes, I was asleep and, you know, he had a shell on his little truck and um, he was staying inside and sleeping. And he said that he heard footsteps and a very, very, very deep guttural kind of grunt, you know. And he says, he's like, yeah, there's no bears around here. And he goes, and hogs make different noises. So he goes, it's got to be a panther or something like that. And I'm just like, oh, I go, did you see anything? And he's like, well, he goes, I looked up. And um, he goes, in, in the direction where it came, it was in the wood line. I saw something black moving. And it was, you know, it looked about the size of a panther. And it was just kind of black, you know. So I, he goes, and, you know, I, I figured it was a, a panther. And, and so I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, and, you know, I said, well, okay. You know, you be careful. You know, and I left. And, um, you know, I was thinking, you know, as I was leaving there, it's like, maybe it's one of these things that, you know, got on all fours as it was coming up to the campground looking for, you know, things that people throw away or, or whatever. But I know, I mean, I'm, I, I don't know for certain, but I'm pretty darn sure that there are no big cats, no panthers, no black panthers out in that part of Texas. At least I've never heard of any, any, anything, you know, even remotely close, but he described that, you know, same kind of dark, you know, I'm sorry, deep guttural sound. And I thought, okay, there, there's, there's some validation there. Uh, my ex-wife told me that she also heard um, um, you know that deep guttural sound, but she and I, and I didn't mention this before, Tom. But she, she mentioned that she heard like um some kind of wording like you know Micmac. You know she she said that Micmac, and I was just and it was like a a, a a talking point from that point forward. You know Micmac was what she thought she heard that whatever made that noise vocalize and my hearing is pretty bad. So all, all I can say is I heard something very deep, you know, no def definition of any kind of, you know, um, sounds just deep guttural, but that's what she said she heard. Well, you know, I'm going to jump in for just a second. I want to comment two things. Yeah. Number one, you and I, we talked about this last night as well. Number one, Okay, if it is a panther, which it wasn't, but if it was, you never hear a panther walk across. You never hear them. I've, I've talked to people who've had right. mountain lions, you know, who, who have snuck up on them. And the only reason they survived is because their partner behind them saw it. And so you, they're cats. Okay, you don't hear. Number two, the only panthers or pumas or mountain lions in North America are just that. They're really an oversized house cat. They're huge. And they're the only one in the cat world that doesn't growl. African lions growl, 
Um, I think jaguars growl, but nothing in North America goes, and so, you know, two two strikes against that theory is, number one, you don't hear them walk, and number two, they don't growl. Yeah. Well, I just, I you know, I, I agree with you. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not, you know, into, you know, um, yeah, I, I don't know anything about different species of cats or anything like that, but I, I do live in an area where there are mountain lions, uh, and they do sneak up. They'll jump in your yard, you know, you know, take your German shepherd by the neck and jump back over. They're like 200 pounds around here. Uh, but you're right. They're, they're quiet. And, you know, and I found it very peculiar that as I was coming back, you know, he mentioned that, it, you know, he heard that guttural thing and, and then he looked out and he saw something black that kind of resembled a panther. And he just kind of put, you know, you know, um, I, I don't want to call it a fact, but, you know, observation element one and observation element two and came out with must be a panther because that's probably the the only thing that he could have maybe related to in his experience of something black crawling around that makes like a, a deep growl. But, yeah, I, I just it, to me, it was. You know, it was validation the, that there's something back there. Uh, but those footprints, um, they were just, they were humanoid uh, or, you know, what resembled the humanoid uh, kind of configuration. They, they were bigger. And the other thing is, is that, they, you know, when you see human prints, unless someone is extremely flat-footed with a fallen arch, you see you know, the, the heel and then the outer crescent of the, the side of the foot and then the, the ball and the toes. That's not what this was. This was like, you know, uh, the shape of a foot, you know, wide and long and heavy. I mean, I wasn't leaving tracks in the substrate where I was seeing him as, you know, when we went into the um, inside, you know, backing back towards the, the little campground. But they were there, and you know, and it, I have to think that that if I saw them, and they were still with pretty clear definition, that they would have had to have been made, you know, in the, in the last day or so, more than likely, because it, it does rain out there, and even though this isn't like an area that's heavily, you know, uh, visited by people, because it's, I mean, it's 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 way off the beaten path, and you know. Unless you you know you enjoy that kind of walk, you know, in the thicket with bugs, um, you know, you're you're probably not going to do it. And so, who, whoever was walking back there, whatever was walking back there, you know, I, I I refuse to believe that it was people with the kind of weight that it takes to make that kind of an imprint with the kind of size and proportions, and then dragging in tow somebody else with smaller feet, and yet again somebody else with even smaller feet all walking barefoot back there just you know the context of what i saw it just doesn't support that someone would be back there just on on the hope that someone would see something and for what you know so whatever caused it out there i think that they were just walking back towards the campground you know and they sneak in and sneak out quietly and this guy just caught a glimpse of them because you know he was asleep but not really and heard them so I, 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 I think that it all kind of happened probably within the last, 
day or so, certainly from when that guy was there, which I think, you know, he'd been there a couple of days at the most. So something's, something was in there as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and footprints, I mean, you said what, 17, 18 inch on the yeah. big one. Yeah. Yeah. That's that rules out a person period. Nobody just sorry. And, and flat footed, you know, like you said, like a, um, lack of an arch. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, by this point in my life, I, I'd kind of, you know, um, and, and, and I, and I, and I say, I, I look, I, I read all the different articles, listen to all the good podcasts. You know, I've, uh, I've had, you know, conversations with people about some of the attributes of these creatures, at least from, you know, from, uh, from a personal experience, you know, realm, you know, and, you know, I've seen, I've seen a lot of information, you know, that I consider, you know, valid and, you know, you know, done right and judicious and, you know, fact-based. And the, the one thing that I'd say is that when, when you step on the ground, if you're walking barefoot, um, in those areas and you're not used to, um, you know, walking barefoot in the thicket in Texas where there's all that stuff, I mean, you're going to get cut up and you're going to be tiptoeing and you're going to be stepping not with, you know, four foot cadences as if you were, you know, running or hopping. You're going to have a tenderfoot kind of the pace. Uh, you know, you're going to be stepping on rocks, stepping on, you know, anything to to cushion and protect your foot, you know. And that's not what I saw. I saw, you know, footmarks that were from a weighted, you know, physical presence sinking into um, into the substrate. Well, and, you know, there's another good point here, and that is um, going barefoot in the woods is just not a thing anymore. I mean, it's, you know, I think in our, you know, going back a couple generations grandparents uh you know more of a agricultural lifestyle you know it might have been more common for people to to go barefoot they don't do that today it's you know shoes are foot coverings are very inexpensive and easy to come by and just nobody does that and and even if they did they're not going to have a 17 or 18 inch foot so i think that pretty well you know that that kind of nails it down and then the grunt that you yeah. heard and um all of that and then this other gentleman that was there the you know semi-homeless guy um yeah he, he validated that you know what what would prompt him to say hey you got to be careful out there you know i think what i think the answer to that is that it caught him off guard he didn't know what to think he sees me going in there you know, armed or whatever, and you know, he just felt like, you know, hey, yeah, you're armed, but whatever's out there, there's there's an animal out there. Was the message, and even if you're armed, you, you know, you know, from his perspective, it was a big cat. That may not be enough, <laughs> and I would have to agree with him, except that, you know, I I just I know it wasn't a cat. Whatever whatever he saw, I'm pretty sure it was. A creature that doesn't necessarily get noticed as much, you know, because it's it, it's in this corridor, 
uh, and, and I mentioned where it was, in the corridor of trees, it's super thick, and it runs along the back uh, of these properties. You know, and the only way to get there is through these access roads or cutting across from somebody's property. So whatever, whoever's coming in and out, you know, um, it has to go through there. Anything else that's, that, you know, is staying back there, you know, is is under concealment most of the time. And, and, and it's dark even during the days there. So whatever he saw, he just, you know, he just assumed it was like a, a cat because that's the only thing he can think of. But no, I know it was couldn't have been that and whatever was leaving those prints obviously was not a cat well we have a couple of gentlemen the down in texas that we get very frequent reports hmm. from uh joe and walter and it's they never come back empty-handed when they go out they look for these things and um, i think will can probably speak to that a little better than i can as far as the temperament, I think, of these creatures is uh, a little more aggressive. Uh, they're just a different breed of these things down in Texas. So, yeah, it seems like it. It seems like it. They would need to be, you know, because I think in in the Pacific Northwest, they can flee pretty pretty quickly. Uh, I'd say in, at least in in the area that I saw them, but out in Texas, I mean, you know, I've heard that even like in, um, I mentioned like in the eastern portion of Texas, as you get, you know, closer to Arkansas and Louisiana, and some of these sightings that take place, like in, in Sam Houston National Forest, it, these sightings take place not very far away from people's houses, you know, and I, and I think that they, they probably get skittish because they, they do have confrontations with probably dogs and hunters and, and, and whatnot. I, you know, maybe just thinking it through, I mean, it makes sense that, you know, if, you know, you'd probably have to scare things off more than you would out in the Pacific Northwest. Just a thought, you know, but yeah, that, that was, no, I would, I would agree. It's, it's, uh, I think the creatures are adapted to whatever environment they're in, uh, obviously, because that's how yeah. they survive. And, um, so, well, listen, uh, we, you got to stay in touch with us. Uh, okay. it was a very good, uh, conversation and hearing about your encounters and, of course, I took particular interest in the first one because I've I've camped in that campground and I know it very well. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, really fascinating. Thanks, gentlemen. I, I really appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to put this out there. It's therapeutic. It, it really is, and you know, it's. It is. It's like a, Yeah. <laughs> I, I know the feeling. Let me tell you. Yeah. It is. I really appreciate it, and I hope. Um, one of these days, maybe the truth comes out, or, or maybe not. I, I don't know how I feel about that, you know, because, I mean, there, there are people out there that, you know, ridicule the topic, and, oh, you know, yeah. they go, you know what I mean? And they go out there, and on TV, you just see a bunch of junk, and, you know, just, it, it's sad. And I think the enigma, you know, that, that, you know, we're interested in here is, you know, it's fascinating because, to, to have a species that thrives um, 
on being stealth and you know and evading you know human presence and human humans all together is a sign of you know utter intelligence yeah and there's yeah there's so much room here in this country where they could walk back and forth you know and I well, almost want to say it's, it. yeah it's 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 seems like the whole topic is uh it's it's encouraged in some circles to be disrespected so um well listen yeah. i think we're going to wrap this up okay. and um i appreciate you coming on um right, stick gentlemen. around uh, for just a moment when we um go off the air here and I'll, i got a question for you okay carlos thank you again so much we really appreciate your time All right, everyone, stay tuned for the next segment. Welcome back from the break, everyone. We were going to have Moran join us today for the Q&A, but uh, he's not available, so we'll have him next time. Tom, do you want to start off? I know you wanted to bring something up. Yeah, um, and we have Annie in uh, Australia. So, hello, Annie. Good to hear from you. She had a really interesting question, and it's actually this is one that I've I've heard in the past. It's uh, it's kind of a fascinating topic, but um, I'll just kind of dig in here. There is a story on the internet, and it's, I think it's been out there for, for a while, because I saw it years ago, that some lady is um, had a, a long-term uh, kind of a relationship with one of these things where the creature would come to her house, and it would uh, it would she would exchange, she would give it garlic. Uh, the creature wanted garlic, for, I believe it was for medicinal purposes. And and I think the point of it is, is just that the, you know, the, hey, this thing is, it's friendly. It's, uh, you know, it actually talks to her. Um, and so Annie's question is, what's the validity of this? Have we ever interviewed any of these people? And I would say, no, we haven't. It, um, if, if somebody out there does have a, uh, a relationship with one of these things where they, give it uh, garlic, I think, for medicine and that sort of thing, or any any sort of exchange like that, <clears throat> and you have, you know, you talk with them and et cetera. Uh, well, we'd like to hear from you, uh, but I, I have never, it, it's just uh, polar opposite. It's a total contradiction of everything that we know about the creatures that we've seen. And, um, you know, just, I don't know, Will, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I don't uh, don't subscribe to that. Yeah, and we do hear this from time to time where people say, well, gosh, you know, I stepped on a rattlesnake and uh, the thing ran off into the woods and it grabbed some leaves and it uh, made it compress and and healed my uh, rattlesnake wounds. I haven't heard Uh, that. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, I heard that. That was some guy had, I don't remember what it was. He did something earlier on to endear himself to the creature and he had stepped over a log. It wasn't. He wasn't being attentive, stepped on a rattlesnake, and wham, it got him. And his leg starts to swell up, and then out of nowhere, this uh, Bigfoot shows up, and it's like, hey, buddy. And he runs off and grabs some 
medicinal whatever out of the woods and makes it compress and heals the guy's uh, rattlesnake you know, wound. I'll, I'll be honest. I, I don't find any credibility in that. Really? You no, don't? I don't. <laughs> Uh, no, I don't either. It'd be great if it was true. You know, we'd have some some assistance if we ran into trouble like that. No, no, these. Uh... Let me let me make a comment, folks. There's if you hear what sounds like typing in the background. We three of us were just discussing it. None of us are doing that. So if you're hearing that, you're just as surprised and as we are. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll hear that noise. I don't know if you two can hear that, but uh... I haven't heard it yet. But. Uh... Yeah. Maybe maybe it's just me that's being monitored. <laughs> More than likely, yeah. Okay, well, let's go on. Brian, I know you've probably got questions, too. We'll start with you. Yeah, well, this isn't really... Well, I guess it is a, a question, too, but there was a report a couple weeks ago about two bow hunters in Michigan who came across not one, but two of these things, and they were engaged in a fight, they reported. And I'm just wondering if you've ever heard of that before or if we have any eyewitnesses of two of these creatures actually fighting i think there was an account in one of green's books where they talked about him wrestling but were there any details on this account well not a whole lot and i'll go ahead and i'll put this in a newsletter for our, our patreon uh patreons but um but not a lot of detail but it was just a report and this is in michigan and I forget what part, I'll have to look up the article, but they were surprised. They were supposedly non-believers in this thing, but they, and I don't think their encounter was that long because I guess when the creatures uh, spotted them or saw them, they, they fled, but it, it, it sounded like they were fighting, like not just playing, but actually engaged in a fight. So kind well, of interesting. We'll have to revisit that when we get more details. Tom, I know you've got yeah, a bunch no, of questions. That, that's interesting. Uh, a question I had was, did they have boxing gloves? You know, what's, uh, what, what were they up to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, this is a question from Robert, and he says, British explorer David Thompson, sometimes credited with the first discovery, 1811, of Sasquatch tracks. Are there any earlier written accounts uh, that we're aware of? Yeah, there's the oldest one I know of is around 1811, and there's even stuff before that. So um, I have a book that was written by uh, Spanish sailors, and they talk about them in the uh, what's currently the Pacific Northwest in Washington State, Puget Sound area. So, and I think I have, I'll check the date on. It. I want to say it was the late 1600s, early 1700 time frame. Yeah, that would make sense, wouldn't it? I mean, that's uh, uh, it'd be interesting to talk to uh, Alan about that. See if he has any historical records from the Pacific Northwest predating, because even eighteen eleven, that's that's pretty early. Well, you know, okay. in order to have the Bigfoot tracks, yeah, you got to have. I'm looking at the book now. It's the and I'm going to butcher the name. It's Noticias de Nootka. It's an account of the Nootka Sound, which was originally, or at that time, the Puget Sound, uh, from 1792. Wow. And let's see, there is the reference. They called the creatures the Matlocks, which is kind of interesting. It's, you know, the 
what was the movie, The Time Machine or The Morlocks? <laughs> right, <laughs> I, that's, that came to mind. Yeah. Um, yeah, I should have been better prepared for this, but uh, they just call it uh, Inhabitant of the Mountainous District, uh, of whom all have an unbelievable terror. Body was very monstrous, all covered with stiff black bristles. Head was similar to a human one, but with much greater, sharper, and stronger fangs than those of a bear. Uh, it goes on to say, just extremely long arms, toes and fingers, armed with long, curved claws. I don't know about that, but uh, and then they say it shouts. They say, force those who hear them to the ground. And any unfortunate body he slaps is broken into a thousand pieces. And, you know, I, I have a feeling that, you know, there's some some kernels of truth in that. I mean, I don't know about the claws, but, um, you know, the, some of the other details, the the hair and, and description and, and what it does with the sound. I mean, I've been fairly close with one of these things screamed. And if you're, if you're even closer, uh, I can see where it would drive you to your knees just by the sheer volume. Yeah. And again, that flies in the face of our friendly Bigfoot encounters, interactions, that sort of thing. Historically, they aren't friendly. And I know there's some people that might argue that they'd say, well, there are native American tribes that describe a, B, and C, but you know we don't. We're not going to go into all that because we've done it before. Uh, it just depends on their experiences with them. Okay, Tom, Brian, you guys. Uh, I'll just let you guys go ahead and shoot questions, and we'll proceed on. Okay. So I'm just looking at some of the YouTube comments, and this is from a long time ago. I'm not sure if we answered this, but someone named Hamlin was wondering if there are any. I guess, well, specifically, he wants to know, are there any police records or logs of, of these things when people hear this? Or I guess the broader question would be when somebody, like a person of authority, uh, hears about a report and investigates a report, do they actually record this? Or do they, is it something that they just keep quiet, do you think? Well, I think oftentimes, now they may record it. I think there are some, well, in fact, there are a couple I know of that you know, they checked them out, and the story went up, and that was kind of the end of it. There were people like Mark Pittenger, who was a Washington State trooper, um, you know, and he talked openly about his encounter, which he saw the same creatures I did around the same time period in the early 70s, and it caused him a lot of grief, you know, with his co-workers. Um, I, I think most yeah. often, you know, and then there's the occult situation, you know, when the when the deputy sheriffs went out there, they kind of, it was more tongue-in-cheek for them. They didn't believe anything happened, and, and they left. Yeah. I, I think they probably just mentioned yeah. in the report that they went there, looked, and there was nothing. Right, and I would imagine that, that I mean, as an investigator, you, your first job is to, like we've talked about, be skeptical a little bit. And, I mean, if they come across a report and they talk to somebody, they probably would just say, yeah, we looked into it and there's no credibility to it or that we could see. Yeah, I, well, and I, I tend to think it's, you know, a lot of a lot of the officers probably go in there with a little bit of a bias, whether they think they have one or not, you know, because they probably think, well, it's all baloney. Uh, I did want to address one thing quickly about, uh, there was a comment about um, Jerry Klein's story, you know, when the 
when the officers went out to his place and, and the commander said, well, how come, how come they didn't, you didn't believe the story because they didn't take him somewhere. Um, you know, unless there's a reason to take someone somewhere, you know, the officers are not going to do that. So, um, in that case there wasn't, you know, they did find, they did find footprints. They found where his trailer had been moved a couple of feet. Um, but there wasn't any reason to remove him from the location. I'm sure in their eyes. Right. Now, um, switching gears, uh, how big do you think their skulls are? I mean, from the ones you saw, I mean, how, how would they compare to like a gorilla's like how big are their heads? I should say, because you know, gorillas, they can get up to 400, 500 pounds, I believe. And these things can get over a thousand pounds. Well, I've, I've actually got, um, a copy of a gorilla skull on my desk and, and a couple different Gigantopithecus, uh, remakes from their teeth and et cetera from the fossils. And of course the Gigantopithecus would have been about probably on the same size scale as a Sasquatch roughly. Uh, and they're, they're more than twice as large as a gorilla skull probably two two and a half times larger wow That's now the huge. now the Krantz the Krantz skull is is only a little bit larger but his was inaccurate in the measurement so the other one that I have uh, is much larger than that so yeah they're they're a lot bigger and then having seen the live creature yeah they're <laughs> much bigger well and what about the the la- What's that? Columbia. The uh, there's a lady in British Columbia that found the um, no, they found the carcass. Oh, the, the and you can put your head inside of the yeah, the jawbone. Yeah, they took the jawbone. Well, that's that was the comment in the story was that, you know, people visiting. It was sort of a conversation piece, sitting on the mantelpiece for 14 years, and they could place the jaw completely over their faces, which is is accurate with the uh, the larger Gigantopithecus mock-ups that I have oh yeah I think Moran is going to join us fellas let me bring him on but uh yeah let's go ahead and uh you know continue on here okay so this is also from a YouTube and I know that we've talked about this before but maybe this is a new listener uh he was asking and I forgot to put his name down but he was asking could one of these things be infected by COVID and I think you've covered this before but basically the CDC is well you can't always rely on the CDC, as we, we've learned, but they have said that before that this is something that you can't get from um, touch. Like, in other words, if you touch an object and one of these things touches it, too, it's not really how it's spread. It's more of a respiratory thing, like the air that you breathe. And these things don't usually come that close in contact with us. So any thoughts on that? I mean, that's how well, I describe it. Yeah, it's who knows. I mean, I... Yeah, no, that's one of those questions, you know, how in the world do you know? Moran, how are you doing this morning? Hi, a little late. Sorry about that. No uh, worries. Last things to do. So, Moran, you were going to bring up some stuff we talked about before. Let's, uh, I'm going to go ahead and hand you the microphone and, and tell us what you had on mind. All right. Uh, I've been into paleontology and anthropology and primatology since I was young. 
now this goes into quite a lot of things um, paleontologically. And if you go back to an era referred to as the Miocene, that's when a lot of the primates started um, really developing, the greater primates started developing. You're talking millions of years. Now, if you go back before our branch of the primate uh, lineage, you will get into things called Australopithecines. And before that, roughly between seven to 10 million years ago, there were also uh, rudimentary primates that were, they know now, were upright walking. They weren't uh, human as such, they were primates, but they were upright walking. That said, if you move forward in time uh, into the late Miocene, when the um, hominins started developing, um, you can then look at, and we're talking great spans of time here, um, creatures that uh, developed, they diversified into different habitats. Uh, so you can get various species on a um, common um, uh, branch. Um, so if you move in, in regards to these creatures, and I think I was telling you before, if you can do comparative um, thinking in regards to this, in regards to other creatures down through time, uh, uh, example I think I gave to you was a thing called the uh, Dallasaurus. It's a uh, three to four foot long lizard type creature. Uh, that over a span of between five to seven million years re-entered the aquatic realm and within that time frame went from a three to four foot lizard type creature to almost a 50 foot um, monster that uh, diversified in different ways and um, dominated every other creature in the ocean. Uh, and the only other predator they had were each other. Uh, so those things were called tylosaurs. Now, another creature that existed was um, called, um, uh, let me think one sec, um, Paracerotheriums. Um, they were a, a creature that existed uh, for from about 33, 34 million years ago to about 23 million years ago. Um, and um, grew to immense size. 
over that time. Now, they, they had a whole family of these creatures started out as small as a, a large dog, same as horses. But they grew in their final um, representation into something that was two to three times larger than the largest African bull elephant. And they're the, they're the only mammal, and they were a uh, rhino-type creature that existed that if you crossed a uh, rhino and a giraffe, uh, that's what you get. The, 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 the massive dimensions of a rhino crossed with a giraffe and uh, these things were immense in size. Uh, they ranged between uh, uh, 11 and 22, 23 tons. And they're the only creature that rivaled the dinosaurs in size. Now, if you do that correlative of thinking and transfer it over to these creatures, and my thought process is that if there were, and now we knew, do know that there were s several different types of these uh, Australopithecines or related hominins. Not, um, if you get a stable environment, one or more of these creatures could have survived. And we know that the land bridge between Asia and North America has formed and reformed many times. And they could have crossed over. And you only need, uh, if you follow the game, one mile a year from northern Africa to eastern Asia, it only, only takes about 1,500 years to span that distance. Uh, and a lot less time to cross over into North America. Now, given that time frame that they, they could possibly have existed they've had more than enough time to in if um, nothing else is driving any kind of development other than growth then yes they're going to be this size that these creatures are um, given uh, uh, the relative time frame that I may be talking about they are um, a intermediate stage between the early hominin or greater apes that existed from 8 to 10 million years ago when, when uh, the planet was literally the planet of the apes. And there were many, many more species of great apes than there are today. And um, several of them were very large. But uh, in the line that we exist in, that we are derived from, uh, these creatures um, exp uh, expanded their range. And if you, um, then the, the, the forest millions of years ago uh, transversed all of Asia. It, it's not like it is today. Uh, it, it, the steppe plains of Eastern Asia were all forested. And it was very uh, subtropical. So they had the habitat to transverse that, that region. And they're not really sure whether 
primates developed in Africa or Asia now. There's a big debate going on about that. Or there may have been different species that developed in regional areas at the same time. So if you take all this information and um, correlatively think about it, Yes, there could have been one or more of these creatures that transversed over to North America. And given a stable environment, they can exist for great spans of time. Hey, Moran, I want to jump in real quick before we get too far. Um, if there's a possibility that you have, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, parallel evolutionary paths for for an ape developing in in Africa and another one developing in what we now call Eurasia, I believe. Um, so they're, <clears throat> they're completely unrelated to each other. Is that right? That, that is one line of thinking. Okay. So there no, no um, good, hard consensus within the anthropological um, realm that uh, everything developed in Africa. Yeah, they found they found uh, hom early hominids in uh, Georgia. Um, They're doing um, reconstruction on a on a uh, some structure, and they start digging in the ground. They accidentally found uh, skull uh, material from very early hominids, indicating. Well, the, the question I have is, so you have some kind of a process going on in evolution that is potentially creating a hominid, both in Africa, if, you know, if, if they did, if it did occur in both uh, continents, both in Africa and in Asia or Eurasia. And so I just find it interesting that you have this, the same or similar creature being developed if you will in two totally different con continents so there must be conditions or something that well what are your thoughts on that well, that would create like this? i said you have to think this this is, spans millions of years of time you know you think about one million years and all the habitat uh, adjustments that go on within that one million year time frame and then you take into account several million years or tens of millions of years. And you're talking about um, a, a different type of planet that existed. You have to think in larger terms. And at that time frame, the forest was one continuous band all around the top of the planet. And Africa and into Asia, it was heavily forested. It wasn't step plane as it is today. And so these creatures could have um, transversed in and out of Africa or developed in Asia or expanded the range into Africa through that forestation in a general way. So if let's say 
during the Pleistocene when a lot of changes started happening to the planet. Uh, a lot of species went extinct near the end of that period of time. Forests started uh, decimating, you know, decreasing in size in Asia. Um, and that would push any species. They may, some may have gone extinct. Some may have been pushed directionally one way or the other. So the early primates that developed into hominins could have been pushed into Africa. And then the same thought process uh, could have pushed them the other way into Eastern Asia. And if the land bridge was above water at that time, because we do know that the, that land bridge has formed and reformed many, many, many times uh, over the ages, they could have transversed into North America and pushed into North America by the uh, lessening of the uh, habitat from inland to the coast and further on. And so you, like, uh, I, I, you, you got to think in very long spans of time. No, I think you. I think you answered the, the question. I'm not sure I, I um, phrased it correctly. So it really sounds like you're saying possibly they both have a common ancestor, but they would have uh, diversified. You know, maybe one in Eurasia and one would have, could have moved into Africa, and that's. But the bottom line is, whatever processes existed to create this common hominid and then they moved into two different directions two geographical directions is that kind of make sense yeah. yeah and like for example if you go further back in time into the 30 millions of years um there were creatures called hyenodons they had no correlative uh family uh associated today um, but um, they existed for approximately 20 million years. They were carnivore, and they grew to immense sizes. I mean, some of them grew to the size of a rhino. Um, so they existed in North America. Now, later on, there was a creature called the bear dog that transversed over the land bridge into North America that started out-competing that predator. They, they, and those things have no correlative representative today. They're a uh, cross between a dog and a bear. They had a very long tail, about the size of a small grizzly bear. They ran flat on their feet like a grizzly bear. Um, immensely powerful. And they competed these hyenodons over time. And then uh, the, and the cats developed moved into North America and started out competing these bear dogs. So you can have species that diversify and then move into new areas over time. And you're talking about vast periods of, of time in regards to this. We know that there were several uh, species of uh, these Australopithecines 
So you can have one or more of these that may have moved into North America and given the time, they could have readapted to this environment. And if you take any animal and give it enough time, they just get bigger. It's just, it's, it's, they don't know why, but over a millennia or more, uh, creatures just tend to get bigger unless it's in an island habitat, which then you get uh, island uh, giganticism or miniaturization. But generally speaking, um, over vast periods of time, uh, animals will just get bigger and primates are no exception. Um, there was a creature I think everybody's familiar with, Gigantopithecus, in relation to primates that weighed well in excess of a thousand pounds at an average height of 10 feet if it stood up or more. So that's one representation of primates that existed that reached gigantic size. Now, my thinking is that nature hates a void. These creatures may have been in Asia and Gigantopithecus went extinct. They've now uh, determined that, um, and we're all familiar with this creature, Tyrannosaurus, and they know that um, before that developed, uh, there was another super predator that uh, was in inhibiting its development in North America, which was uh, referred to as Carcharonids or Carcharodontids. Um, and they were the apex predator. And for whatever reason, that went extinct. And that gave a void, which the Tyrannosaurs stepped into and started uh, redeveloping. And they just got bigger uh, to their massive size that we know them to be. But I'm just going to jump in real quick, uh, Moran, with a question on the T-Rex. And I apologize, folks, for getting a little bit off topic, on, on uh, but we're laying down some foundation for uh, Sasquatch. But yeah. what are your thoughts on uh, – there's some kind of new thoughts that Tyrannosaurus really didn't run down and hunt down and kill – prey but rather was more like a scavenger uh there's a schism in uh the paleontological field about that jack horner who's a well-known paleontologist uh refers to them as scavengers because of their size they weren't very fast moving uh they've done biomechanical uh tests on their structure and determined they could uh move at a pace of about uh no more than 27 kilometers an hour, 27 miles an hour. Oh, uh, really? That's, yeah, because uh, of their bulk. And they had those tiny forearms, you know, what are they going to grab with those? They had very long legs, very light, uh, lightly built structure, so they could move a lot faster. So what they think was going on is that there's a thought now that they were pack predators and that the young ones drove prey into the adults and then dispatched their prey with the uh, massive bite of the adult, the adults. But that's a representational thought in regards to these, these creatures, right? Um, 
they're they're you give enough time to something, they just tend to get bigger. Uh, we have a lot of representative things, draft horses um, that have been artificially driven uh, to get very, very large. We've actually pushed evolution much faster than it would normally be because uh, I think the Russian step horse is the Asian representation of a natural uh, horse, and they're much I think uh, if you've seen Mongolian riders, the horses were much smaller. Uh, Yes, they did have a very old uh, lineage over millions of years. They started off the size of a cat. And over time, eons grew larger. There were several different representative um, evolutionary types. Uh, So primates are no different. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to circle back to... Uh, Bigfoot for a moment here in regards yeah. to the getting large. Periodically, we hear reports, uh, and typically the Sasquatch, kind of the upper limits, and will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the upper limits of their size is uh, 11 and a half, <clears throat> 12 feet. But once in a while, you hear reports of some that are 15, 18 feet. You don't know if this is, you know, just the person's reaction when they saw is, oh my gosh, the biggest thing I ever saw. Or if there's actually the possibility that primates could get that big. Because I think there's, I can't think of what it is, but I remember years ago reading about there's, there's kind of a rule in biology that there's a limitation, there's a growth hormone that inhibits the size that you can get. And also, if you just simply get too big, uh, gravity becomes a problem. They're they're not going to get to be eighteen feet. <laughs> no, ten, I'm disappointed. Ten, ten feet I, is probably I the upper limit. Of, I kind of think, in regards to reports on giant snakes in the Amazon or in Asia, reticulated python or green anaconda from South America, people reporting they've seen snakes in excess of fifty feet, maybe approaching hundred feet. Now, the only other snake that ever existed in the fossil record uh, up till that point was referred to as Titanoboa, and that reached an approximate length between 40 and 50 feet, and probably had a girth straight through of probably five feet. Um, I've seen representational uh, vertebrae from both anacondas and these creatures, and the dimensions are monstrous. But I've also seen uh, biomechanical um, workups on the possible odor limit uh, size of prime uh, upright walking primate. Uh, I think it's somewhere around. 12 feet and no more than 1,200 pounds. Otherwise, you're going to have exceeding uh, stress points in all the joints and um, bones couldn't uh, withstand that kind of pressure. A good representational example of that in the fossil record is the giant short-faced bear. Uh, they were a persistence hunter. 
but their bone structure didn't indicate an uh, animal that could turn very fast. Otherwise, they'd break their legs. They were very good at um, pursuit hunting because most bears, if you look at them, their front legs are shorter than their back legs. And in these creatures, both legs were, sets of legs were the same length, indicating a good uh, pursuit hunter. Now, they um, were able to come onto a carcass that other people, other predators uh, could probably have taken down. And they were like the bullies of the open plains. They could intimidate with size to drive other predators away uh, where they couldn't maybe catch their own prey or they could catch prey. And some of these things were immense in size. You're thinking that you have to think about a polar bear and upsize it uh, a couple times. You're th- talking about something, if it stood up on its hind legs, it would be 16 feet tall. Uh, be a good eight feet at the shoulder on all quadruped, on all fours. Um, but their bone structure, if they tried to turn quickly, they couldn't. They'd break their legs just because their bone structure was uh, light for pursuit hunting. So to get something on two legs at that size would probably cause immense stresses uh, that would probably do the same thing. Any thoughts? Yeah, that, well, that was kind of where I was going uh, as far as their, their, you know, kind of a size limitation. And um, so, right. And, and of course, any creature that's, that gets a broken bone, that's it. They're done. They're history. Yeah. And you have to think that when somebody's surprised, they go into a state of shock immediately. And everything is accentuated. Your, your system is being flooded with adrenaline. And um, your perceptions are then um, skewed in regards to what you're seeing. You're running on sheer panic and you react to that threat in a panicked way and everything is accentuated. So um, I've worked in the Marine field most of my life and I've run up against a lot of situations that could have meant my death. So it's caused me to be very pragmatic and look at things in in a very calm way because I I have experienced those events and um, if you you can't do that I've seen people hyper react to situations that made them think it was many times worse than what it actually was but that's the human condition we are a, uh, we're classified as a hyper predator and we react very viscerally to threats. We, um, 
try to eliminate any threats because we don't have big claws or teeth to defend ourselves with. And you'll uh, probably see people get really ramped up, hyped up. And in regards to things, I'm a very um, methodical thinker uh, because of my work. And um, so it's, it's caused me to uh, look at things very pragmatically. In regards to these creatures, um, you'd have to conduct yourself in a very calm way if you ran into the, one of them. Uh, I was just going over some material, and um, any predator, if you turn and run, instantaneously you're perceived as prey. Uh, if you were to run into one of these creatures, to be able to coolly and calmly um, deal with that, it's a big ask, yes, because primates are, it's like turning, they, they um, react emotionally. They don't react analytically because they're, they don't have those types of pro thought processes that we do. Um, I was watching a report on a young boy that was actually in a stressed situation and uh, his uncle was working on a car and uh, the car fell down on his uncle and without thought, this 17-year-old skinny kid grabbed a hold of the car and lifted it off his uncle. How, did, how does a boy, 17 years old, may weigh 140 pounds, do that? Well, they tested it out. And it seems that uh, we can uh, respond in a way called hysterical um, muscle reflex. And that means that uh, usually if you were to go into a gym and work out, you're using about 10 to 15 percent of your mus muscle uh, energy and fibers in the muscle tissue to do that work. But when you enter a hysterical um, episode, your muscle reacts in a total effort with all muscle fibers engaged. So you can do many more times the effort than you normally would. So when you're in a stressful situation, your adrenals start pumping you with massive amounts of adrenaline and to uh, go into a fight or flight reaction. So if you're faced with a larger predator, you're more often than not going to try to flight, but that's not a good move. You have to think analytically and calmly and not put yourself in a situation that's going to make that predator or creature perceive you as prey. So you know, that's, that was interesting. Um, an explanation finally for how people can do these miraculous physical feats, 140 pound kid lifting a car. And let me back up for a second. So you said under, for like a bodybuilder under normal circumstances, they're using, would you say 18 to 20% of their uh, capability? 10, 10 to 15, maybe 20% of the muscles capability 
because we we uh, look at something, we rationalize, right? You look at a weight, you know, you look at how much that weight uh, weighs. You have a general thought process in regards to how heavy that's going to be, what effort you're going to need to uh, uh, lift that weight, and multiple weights, uh, and then uh, in the effort, all these things come into play. I think Alexia, the Russian weightlifter during the 72 Olympics, they, nobody could get past 500 pounds, no matter how hard they tried, how hard they worked out. So what they did was they tr- tricked Alexia into thinking that he was lifting less weight. They told him how much weight was on the bar, and they actually put 15 pounds or more over the 500-pound mark, and he lifted it because he thought he was lifting less weight. So... He wasn't getting into that um, state of um, this way is this much, and I'm not going to be able to lift it. Uh, so he he didn't think about it. He didn't analyze it. He didn't uh, transfer that um, imaginary uh, blockage in lifting it. He just did it. Because of his experience with lesser weight, you know that is interesting. That goes back to I don't want to say belief system, but a but a belief. What do you what you believe can actually determine what your capabilities are, uh, at least in that circumstance. Yeah. So if you run up against one of these creatures, now I've been in the water with uh, large large predators: white sharks, bull sharks, lemon sharks, tiger sharks. And you have to understand what that animal is. You have to understand that if you react in a very visceral way, panicked way, they are going to respond. And they are going to respond to you in a negative way. And so a lot of surfers, a lot of divers know this because that's the environment that they work in or play in. And they accept that responsibility. They condition their thought processes to understand this and respond accordingly. A lot of divers, they say, they see sharks out in the water and say, you know, they don't want to scare people. Uh, They don't want to create panic. So they say uh, a lot of guys out here in gray suits as a keyword to let other experienced uh, surfers know that there are sharks in the water. I myself was in the water with a 14-foot tiger shark, and I had to remain calm, and this thing swam by me, eyeballed me, and circled me several times, and then moved off, because I I didn't respond in a panicked way, and uh, if it were to attack, what was I going to do? I'm a defenseless human with no defense mechanisms other than my hands. And I've seen shark attacks at uh, what the the results of those are with humans. And they're very devastating. Um, So if any predator you're going to run into, you have to try to remain calm. It's a big ask, I know. And I know people. Most people can. It's a natural process. Marin, can I jump? Yeah, go Marin, ahead. can I jump in? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, you're right. It is a cognitive thing <clears throat> a lot of times. So have you ever run into a, a Sasquatch before? And no, this is something that, like, I live in Nova Scotia, Canada, Lunenburg County, and we don't have this problem here for some reason. We're densely, for the landmass, I would say we're densely populated. So they probably wouldn't like it here, running up against humans all the time. There are a lot of guys with four-wheelers running through the woods. We have D road, we call it D roads that are fire access roads across the province to get into fire, um, fight fire, forest fires and such. And I've biked them and they cross the province. Now, if you go from the center of the province, north or south, it only takes an hour or less to get to the ocean. Now, if you're going to go from end to end, it's going to take you a couple of days uh, to drive from Yarmouth to Cape Breton. Or maybe two, three, uh, driving uh, continually. Uh, maybe less than that. But um, they'd have to transverse up through New Brunswick down into Nova Scotia. And we're basically an island. We're attached to the main part of North America by very small isthmus of land. Uh, and we just don't have the terrain here, I think, they want to inhabit anyway. Well, it's interesting. The um, talking about the need to remain calm, forcing yourself to remain calm in a situation where where you're in the water, you're in their turf, and they're checking you out. I would imagine that there's even though you're remaining calm, there's a kind of a rising anxiety. Yeah, um, I've I've watched a lot of things on the internet over the years in regards to such things and there's a real bad disconnect between humanity and nature now um i watched a thing or saw a thing on the internet of a guy who jumped out of his car and wanted to take a selfie of himself with a grizzly bear and he had <laughs> a friend taking a picture or a video of him taking a selfie with a grizzly bear. And he, he got into within less than this bear. No, I ask you, what do you think happened? Yeah. Um, and one of two things, the bear ignored him or the bear dispatched him. I, I don't know. It's uh, it's, it's foolish the, to do that. The latter would be correct. His yeah. friend got video of him being dispatched by this bear. And that's the kind of disconnect people have with nature and predators. You know, that's a real good point um, that there's more and more. I think we're getting a generation that are losing their connection to nature. Their connection is a kind of an artificial safe world. You know, the Internet, selfies, texting, that sort of thing, technology and and a sense that there are rules to protect us. And guess what? You've got raw rules out in nature. They're different. Well, that's the thing. Uh, we're a generation now and have been for several decades of no limits. Get what you want whenever you want. More so today because of the Internet. And it's lessened a lot of people's wariness and perceptions of uh, natural threats. 
and we're kind of treating the planet like a Disneyland event. Um, Good analogy. It's, it's, I see people doing a lot of stupid things. Uh, and um, so. And it's, well, it's based out of ignorance, based out of a lack of experience, based out of ignorance. Now, my, my, um, I have a sister who used to work at the facility called Bedford Institute of Oceanography in Halifax. And um, I did a lot of learning from that. And um, on my own over the many years, um, zoology is one of my pet subjects, um, as is anthropology and primatology. Um, I know that, uh, if several, one, well, one or more of these species of early hominins were to have existed over eons, that it would be, uh, very matter of fact that they'd reached this size. Uh, they, 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 they when they were, existed millions of years ago they were between three and five feet the big male would be maybe five feet but like i say you give an animal long enough time they just get bigger over time just through natural selection so it'd be it would go to the point that they would be this big given the several millions of years that if they were to have existed here uh, Indians say that they were here before they got here. Um, so how long was it that they were here? Yeah, if that's so. a good question. That's the one I've always wondered. Was it five minutes or was it, you know, I'm being facetious, of course, but yeah, how long were they here before the Indians got here? Well, like I say, um, during the uh, Eocene, uh, and into the Miocene, there, there was a period of the Oligocene, uh, where these early hominid type creatures were developing, and later in the Miocene is when they really started getting going. And um, then you go get into uh, more modern times. Um, and um, they have all that, that's like tens of millions of years ago. Uh, so they've had all that time. Like, if, if you do a comparative analysis, our they know through uh, mitochondrial DNA backtracking, uh, unbroken chain to the earliest. Uh, that they can record on that basis uh, in our species. We're approximately 200,000 years old. But we may be old. They are finding uh, remains of early Homo sapiens in Western Africa dating back to 300 or 350,000 million or thousand years. But that's still a very young species when you comparatively think of other species that have lasted millions of years, a million yeah. or more. 
dangerous. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Very dangerous species, and uh, so uh, to think that we're uh, the be all and end all is very uh, kind of interesting way of thinking. Yeah, it, it, it's sort of yeah, naive. Um, naive. Um, yeah. I want to circle back again real quick, talking about our relationship with nature and, and losing that. And then I'm going to kind of wrap this up. We're just about to the end of our time. But one thing I want to mention is, you know, whether it's whether it's a large primate uh, apex predator or all the way down to, uh, you know, the mycelium in the in the forest floor to the bugs or whatever, everything. Everything in nature is um, it's fighting to survive. It's looking for food. It's looking for yep. survival. And it's yep. looking to defend itself, period. So it's tranquil. It's peaceful in nature. Uh, but just bear in mind that that is the rule of nature is everything is uh, out to defend itself and out to get food. So, you know, just people need to kind of be aware of that. Okay, yeah, well, so I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of wrap this up at this point. Uh, Moran, I really enjoyed having you on, and I know we're gonna have you on for future discussions as well. So, uh, yeah. thank you very very much for being a special guest today. You're yeah. welcome, fellows. Great job as always, and folks, stay tuned for the next segment. The Dena people liked him, Tex Cobb. No sentiment was wasted on either side, but he and the tribesmen had a live-and-let-live understanding that was rare in those days. He stayed off their trap lines, and they stayed off his. If an Indian had a salmon net in an eddy, Texas found another eddy, and vice versa. Due to the fact that the Indians trusted him, we became involved with what today would be called, I suppose, an abominable snowman. I have since heard and read a great deal about the abominable snowman. I have seen the photographs of those tracks in the snow on a Tibetan mountain, and to me, they are simply the tracks of a man with gunny sack or some cloth wrapped around his feet as protection from the cold, climbing slewfoot because the slope was steep and he had no crampons. But when I was a youngster roaming the north with Tex, we had never heard of the abominable snowman. We had, however, heard much about Gilyuk, the shaggy cannibal giant, sometimes called the big man with a little hat. Our adventure with Gilyuk occurred while we were camped in a pretty spruce park on Yellow Jacket Creek, south of Tyrone Lake. We had spent the entire summer on this mountain, Gert Nelchina Plateau, wandering about in aimless nomad fashion. Tex said we were prospecting and looking for fur sign. Maybe we were. He always had to have an excuse for enjoying the country. A commercial excuse, if he could think of one. Anyway, it was now late September. The beautiful time. No mosquitoes. The land ablaze with color. The fish and the meat animals, summer fat. The caribou horde gathering. And we were footloose and free, as perhaps men can never be again. This morning, Tex was making coffee. 
and I was down at the creek clearing a mess of grayling for breakfast when six Indians filed through the timber. They stood for a moment, solemnly regarding our four horses. To them, a horse was a rarity, a mysterious animal. They called them McKinley Moose because McKinley was the only president they had ever heard of, and the horses were as big as moose. I followed them to the camp. Have you eaten? Tex asked them in Denna. They said they had eaten. Chief Stickman was with them. I had seen him once before, at Eklinta Village. A squat, square-faced man, very dark, with long hair and quick-moving obsidian eyes. He was the Denna boss of this entire area, and his reputation was bad. But now, he had trouble that he couldn't handle. He told us about it, and as he talked, he kept standing first on one leg, then the other, balancing himself with the moccasined sole of the free foot against the knee of the supporting leg. I don't know whether it was habit or a medicine trick to ward off evil spirits or both, but it was disconcerting. He had come into this area two days ago, he said, with some of his people to kill and cache caribou for winter use. But they had discovered that Gilyuk, the shaggy giant, was hanging around. They found his sign yesterday, and of course everybody knew that Gilyuk wasn't interested in caribou. Gilyuk ate men. What kind of sign, Tex asked. We will take you to see it, Stickman said. It's not far. After breakfast, we followed the Indians upstream a couple of miles to a burned flat on which a nurse crop of aspen and birch had grown. In the center of the flat stood a ruined birch sapling. It had been about four inches through and maybe ten feet tall. Something had twisted the sapling, as a man would twist a matchstick. The wood had separated into individual fibers. The bark hung in tatters. Stickman and his hunters stood back while Tex and I looked the sight over. Moose often ride a sapling down to get at the tender upper twigs. So do caribou. But no moose or caribou had done this. This had been done by something with hands. It had happened yesterday, because the leaves of the sapling had not yet completely wilted. It wasn't the work of lightning. No burns. A freak whirlwind hadn't done it, because trees and brush a few yards distant were undamaged. The hard ground showed no tracks. We found no snagged hair on the brush. Absolutely nothing, except the incredibly twisted birch sapling. It was, without question, the eeriest sight I have ever beheld in the wilds. Stickman said, It is Gilyuk's mark. We have seen it before. I wish to make clear that to the Dena people, Gilyuk was no legendary creature their grandfathers had told them about. He was a reality and they spoke of him as they spoke of bears and wolves. They saw his sign, and they saw him. He was a shaggy giant who wore a little hat and ate men. We want to ask you to camp with us until we have killed our caribou, Stickman said. Gilyak doesn't molest white men. Perhaps he will not molest us if you are in the camp. Stickman had already told us that he was bivouacked on the shore of a pothole lake two hours to the eastward. Tex said all right, we would move to his camp in the morning. As he was still looking at the twisted sapling, his green eyes narrowed in thought. I couldn't take my gaze off of it either. Stickman said, thanks, Kosaki, a strange word of respect held over from the old Russian Cossack, and we parted company with the Indians. 
Next morning, I brought the horses in at daybreak. We ate, broke camp, and were putting on the packs when here came the Indians, all of them. All, that is, except Stickman. An old man told us Stickman was dead. Gilyuk had taken him. The chief had got up in the night and gone down to the lake, perhaps for water, but nobody knew. A squaw with a birch bark torch found his red flannel underwear on the gravel beach. It had been torn off of him. There may have been tracks, but the entire hunting party had swarmed over the beach, and by daylight no tracker on earth could have made sense of the jumble. Well, until the day of his own death last July, while on a sentimental journey to a fateful spot in Cook Inlet, Tex was convinced that the cannibal giant Gilyuk killed Stickman. When asked if he believed in the existence of abominable snowmen, Tex would reply that he didn't think there were any around in Alaska nowadays, but that they had existed, at least one of them, a couple of decades back. Welcome. This story is being brought to you by William Jevening and is being narrated by Jim Sower. This is the Ruby Creek story. Stories about the Sasquatch have been appearing in print from time to time since the 1860s, and I have clippings in my files from almost every year since the early 1920s. But the modern history of the Sasquatch really dates from September 1941, when one of these creatures paid a visit, in broad daylight, to an Indian family named Chapman. While the Amerindian stories have usually been dismissed as legend, or laughed off because uh, they're not supposed to be reliable, this experience was accompanied by too much physical evidence to be ignored. The Chapman family consisted of George and Jeannie Chapman, and children numbering, at my visit, four. Mr. Chapman worked on the railroad and was living at that time in a small place called Ruby Creek, 30 miles up the Fraser River from Agassiz, British Columbia, in Canada's Great Western Province. It was about three in the afternoon of a sunny, cloudless day when Jeannie Chapman's eldest son, then age nine, came running to the house saying that there was a cow coming down out of the woods at the foot of the nearby mountain. The other kids, a boy age seven and a little girl of five, were still playing in a field behind the house bordering on the rail track. Miss Chapman went out to look. Since the boy seemed oddly disturbed, and they saw what at first she thought was a very big bear moving about among the bushes bordering on the field beyond the railway tracks, she called the two children, who came running immediately. Then the creature moved onto the tracks, and she saw, to her horror, that it was a gigantic man covered with hair, not fur. The hair seemed to be about four inches long all over, and of a pale yellow-brown color. To pin down this color, Mrs. Chapman pointed out to me a sheet of lightly varnished plywood in the room where we were sitting. This was of a brown okra color. This creature advanced directly towards the house, and Mrs. Chapman had, as she put it, much too much time to look at it because she stood her ground outside while the eldest boy, on her instructions, got a blanket from the house and rounded up the other children. 
The kids were in a near panic, she told us, and it took two or three minutes to get the blanket, during which time the creature had reached the near corner of the field only about one hundred feet away from her. Mrs. Chapman then spread the blanket and, holding it aloft so the kids could not see the creature, or it them, she backed off at the double to the old field and down onto the river beach out of sight, and then ran with the kids downstream to the village. I asked her a leading question about the blanket. Had her purpose in using it been to prevent her kids seeing the creature, in accordance with an alleged Amerindian belief that to do so brings bad luck and often death? Her reply was both prompt and surprising. She said that, although she had heard white men tell of that belief, she had not heard it from her parents or any other of her people whose advice regarding the so-called Sasquatch had been simply not to go further than certain points up certain valleys, to run if she saw one, and not to struggle if one caught her as it might squeeze her to death by mistake. No, she said. I used the blanket because I thought it was after one of the kids, and so might go into the house to look for them instead of following me. This seems to have been sound logic, as the creature did go into the house, and also rummaged through an old outhouse pretty thoroughly, hauling from it a fifty-five-gallon barrel of salt fish, breaking this open and scattering its contents about outside. The irony of it is that all three children did die within three years, the two boys by drowning and the little girl on a sick bed. And just after I interviewed the Chapmans, they also were drowned in the Fraser River when a rowboat capsized. Mrs. Chapman told me that the creature was about seven and a half feet tall. She could estimate its height by the various fence and line posts standing about the field. It had a rather small head and a very short, thick neck. In fact, really, no neck at all, a point that was emphasized by William Rowe and by all others who claimed to have seen one of these creatures. Its body was entirely human in shape, except that it was immensely thick through its chest, and its arms were exceptionally long. She did not see the feet, which were in the grass. Its shoulders were very wide, and it had no breasts, from which Mrs. Chapman assumed it was a male, though she did not see any male genitalia due to the long hair covering its groin. She was most definite on one point. The naked parts of its face and its hands were much darker than its hair, and appeared to be almost black. George Chapman returned home from his work on the railroad that day shortly before six in the evening, and by a route that bypassed the village, so that he saw no one to tell him what had happened. When he reached his house, he immediately saw the woodshed door battered in, and spotted enormous humanoid footprints all over the place. Greatly alarmed, for he, like all of his people, had heard since childhood about the big wild men of the mountains, though he did not hear the word Sasquatch till after this incident. He called for his family, and then dashed through the house. Then he spotted the foot tracks of his wife and kids going off toward the river. He followed these until 
he picked them up on the sand beside the river and saw them going off downstream without any giant ones following. Somewhat relieved, he was retracing his steps when he stumbled across the giant's foot tracks on the river bank farther upstream. These had come down out of the potato patch, which lay between the house and the river, had milled about by the river, and then gone back through the old field toward the foot of the mountains, where they disappeared in the heavy growth. Returning to the house, relieved to know that the tracks of all four of his children and family had gone off downstream to the village, George Chapman went to examine the woodshed. In our interview after eighteen years, he still expressed voluble astonishment that any living thing, even a seven-foot-six-inch man with the barrel chest, could lift a fifty-five-gallon tub of fish and break it open without using a tool. He confirmed the creature's height after finding a number of long brown hairs stuck in the slabwood lintel of the doorway above the level of his head. George Chapman then went off to the village to look for his family and found them in a state of calm collapse. He gathered them up and invited his father-in-law and two others to return with him for protection of his family when he was away at work. The foot tracks returned every night for a week and on two occasions the dogs that the Chapmans had taken with them set up the most awful racket at exactly two o'clock in the morning. The Sasquatch did not, however, molest them or apparently touch either the house or the woodshed. But the whole business was too unnerving, and the family finally moved out. They never went back. After a long chat about this and other matters, Mrs. Chapman suddenly told us something very significant just as we were leaving. She said, It made an awful funny noise. I asked her if she could imitate this noise for me, but it was her husband who did so, saying that he had heard it at night twice during the week after the first incident. He then proceeded to utter exactly the same strange, gurgling whistle that the men in California who said they had heard a Bigfoot call, had given us. This is a sound I cannot reproduce in print, but I can assure you that it is unlike anything I have ever heard given by man or beast anywhere in the world. To me this information is of greatest significance. That an Amerindian couple in British Columbia should give out with exactly the same strange sound in connection with a Sasquatch that two highly educated white men did over 600 miles south in connection with California's Bigfoot, is incredible. If this is all hoax, or a publicity stunt, or a mass hallucination, as some people have claimed, how does it happen that this noise, which defies description, always sounds the same no matter who has tried to reproduce it for me? These were probably the last words on the Sasquatch that the Chapmans uttered and I absolutely refused to listen to anybody who might say that they were lying. Admittedly, honest men are such a rarity as possibly to be non-existent, but I have met a few who could qualify, and I put the Chapmans near the head of that list. This story was written by Ivan T. Sanderson in True Magazine, March 1960. This concludes the reading of Ruby Creek. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This is a series of six stories being brought to you by William Jebning 
and being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one, Ape-Like Monsters. Sightings of monstrous ape-like creatures lurking in the darkness of forests and mountainous regions of the world have been reported since the Middle Ages. In 840 A.D., Agobard, the Archbishop of Lyons, told of three such demons, giant people of the forest and mountains, who were stoned to death after being displayed in chains for several days. In his chronicles, Abbot Ralph of Coggeshell Abbey, Essex, England, wrote of a strange monster whose charred body had been found after a lightning storm on the night of St. John the Baptist in June 1205. He stated that a terrible stench came from the beast with monstrous limbs. Villagers of the Caucasus Mountains have legends of an ape-like wild man going back for centuries. The same may be said of the Tibetans living on the slopes of Mount Everest and the Native American tribes inhabiting the northwestern United States. The Gilyaks, a remote tribe of Siberian native people, claim that there are animals inhabiting the frozen forests of Siberia that have human feelings and travel in family units. Based on the eyewitness descriptions of hundreds of reliable individuals around the world who have encountered these creatures, it would seem that the creatures are more human-like than ape-like or bear-like. For one thing, these giants are repeatedly said by witnesses to have breasts and buttocks. Neither apes nor bears have buttocks, nor do they leave flat-footed human-like footprints. In 1920, the term abominable snowman was coined through a mistranslation of the Tibetan word for the mysterious ape-like monster Yeti, wild man of the snow. For the next two decades, reports of the creature were common in the Himalayan mountain range, but it was not until the close of World War II 1939-45, that world attention became focused on the unexplained, human-like bare footprints that were being found at great heights and freezing temperatures. The Himalayan activity reached a kind of climax in 1960, when Sir Edmund Hillary, conqueror of Mount Everest, led an expedition in search of the elusive Yeti, and returned with nothing shown for his efforts but a fur hat that had been fashioned in imitation of the snowman's scalp. The human-like creature, whether sighted in the more remote, wooded, or mountainous regions of North America, South America, Russia, China, Australia, or Africa, is believed by some anthropologists to be a two-footed mammal that constitutes a kind of missing link between humankind and the great apes, for its appearance is more primitive than that of Neanderthal. The descriptions given by witnesses around the world are amazingly similar. Height, 6 to 9 feet. Weight, 400 to 1,000 pounds. Eyes black. Dark fur or body hair from 1 to 4 inches in length is said to cover the creature's entire body, with the exception of the palms of its hands, the soles of its feet, and its upper facial area, nose, and eyelids. Some question the existence of giant ape-like creatures because there is so little physical evidence, besides casts, of huge human-like footprints. Some researchers respond by pointing out that Mother Nature keeps a clean house. Scavengers 
soon eat the carcasses of the largest forest creatures, and the bones are scattered. Zoologist Ivan T. Sanderson suggested that if these beings are members of a subhuman race, they may gather up their dead for burial in special caves. Dr. Jean Marie Theresa Kaufman agreed that the creatures might bury their dead in secret places. It may be, she theorized, that they may throw the corpses of the deceased into the rushing waters of the mountain rivers or into the abysses of rocky caverns. Others remind the skeptical that it is not unusual for certain of the higher animals to hide the bodies of their dead. Accounts of the legendary elephant's graveyard are well known, and in Ceylon the phrase, to find a dead monkey, is used to indicate an impossible task. Proving the existence of such creatures may seem to many scientists to be an impossible task, but persistent searchers for undeniable evidence of the ape-like beings feel that proof is right around the next corner in some darkened forest. Delving Deeper Reports of a large ape-like creature in the United States and the Canadian provinces are to be found in the oral traditions of native tribes, the journals of early settlers, and accounts in regional frontier newspapers, but wide public attention was not called to the mysterious beast until the late 1950s, when road-building crews in the unmapped wilderness of the Bluff Creek area north of Eureka, California, began to report a large number of sightings of North America's own abominable snowman. Once stories of giant human-like monsters tossing around construction crews' small machinery and oil drums began hitting the wire services, hunters, hikers, and campers came forward with a seemingly endless number of stories about the shrill, squealing, seven-foot forest giant that they had for years been calling by such names as Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Wakwak, Oma, or Saskahavis. In North America, the greatest number of sightings of Bigfoot have come from the Fraser River Valley, the Strait of Georgia, and Vancouver Island, British Columbia, the Ape Canyon region near Mount St. Helens in southwest Washington, the Three Sisters Wilderness west of Bend, Oregon, and the area around the Hoopa Valley Indian Reservation, especially the Bluff Creek watershed northeast of Eureka, California. In recent years, extremely convincing sightings of Bigfoot-type creatures have also been made in areas of New York, New Jersey, Minnesota, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Florida. Reports of Bigfoot-type creatures of California go back to at least the 1840s, when miners reported encountering giant two-legged beast-like monsters during the gold rush days. Sightings of the Oma, as the native tribes called them, continued sporadically until August 1958, when a construction crew was building a road through the rugged wilderness near Bluff Creek, Humboldt County, and discovered giant human-like footprints in the ground around their equipment. For several mornings running, the men discovered that something had been disturbing their small equipment during the night. In one instance, an 800-pound tire and wheel from an earth-moving machine had been picked up and carried several yards across the compound. In another, a 300-pound drum of oil had been stolen from the camp, carried up a rocky mountain slope, and tossed into a deep canyon. 
and in each instance only massive 16-inch footprints with a 50- to 60-inch stride offered any clue as to the vandal's identity. When media accounts of the huge footprints were released, people from the area began to step forward to exhibit their own plaster casts of massive, mysterious footprints and to relate their own frightening encounters with hairy giants, stories that they had repressed for decades for fear of being ridiculed. Not to be outdone, Canadians began telling of their own startling accounts with Sasquatch, a tribal name for Bigfoot, that had been circulating in the accounts of trappers, lumberjacks, and settlers in the Northwest Territories since the 1850s. Long before the frontier folk discovered the giant of the woods, the Sasquatch had become an integral element in many of the myths and legends of the native people. Copyright The Gale Group, Inc. This article from Keep Media carried no author, citation, or date. This is the end of story number one. Story number two. Bigfoot hunter trusts his nose to find creature. Big Cypress Bayou, near Jefferson, Texas. The motor sputtered, then died, and as the canoe drifted deeper into the swamp, gray tangles of bearded Spanish moss gave way to murky water and black cypress. Knuckles whitened as Charles DeVore ripped the pull cord. His two-man canoe, three decades old and uneasy under the weight of three men, teetered dangerously with every tug. DeVore yanked the cord once more, then gave up. "'We'll just have to paddle,' he said. There wasn't time to fix the propeller, and there wasn't time for precaution. The party pressed further into the swamp, because that's where Bigfoot was. Bigfoot, or Sasquatch, that elusive creature more often associated with the Pacific Northwest, lives among these knobby trees of the Big Cypress Bayou, DeVore will tell you. While other people have seen the creature, DeVore, well, he has smelled it. Of course, it's the most indescribably putrid, gosh-awful stench you can imagine. It's overpowering, DeVore said. DeVore has discussed that stench with dozens of East Texans who have reported brushes with the hairy hominid. He investigates sightings for the Texas Bigfoot Research Center, a Dallas-based group that documents close encounters throughout the state, most of them in the piney woods and big thicket. Although DeVore professes to be an amateur, he knows enough to understand the creature's ways. Bigfoot no longer scares me, said DeVore, of medium height and a bit paunchy at sixty-four. It might if uh, one was standing right over me, but they've never hurt anybody. I have a fear of wild hogs, wild dogs, and anything else out there that might bite my butt, but I really have no fear of Bigfoot. So DeVore paddles the bayou in the middle of the night, a coon hunting spotlight, and night vision camera at his side. He also wanders the forest trails he is bush-hogged near his trailer house. He sniffs the night air and listens for snapped twigs. It's a hobby, he said, a passionate interest. DeVore moved to the big cypress bayou, the slow-moving body of water that slinks between Lake of the Pines and Cattle Lake in 1990. 
A heart attack had forced him into early retirement. He told himself, I'm going to sit up here beside this water until the day I die and enjoy it. And that's just what he did, puttering around in his canoe with the little outboard motor that he had rigged to the back, or gliding across the deep green water in his kayak, exploring inlets and taking photographs. It's so beautiful out here, he said. Normally I'm not talking, and I sneak up on all kinds of wildlife. As he paddled deeper into the forest of submerged cypress trees, stained black by years of up-and-down water levels, thoughts returned to the rickety little canoe, then to the cold black water, and always to the possibility of sneaking up on the most elusive creature of them all. THE WAYS OF BIGFOOT Although Bigfoot is reportedly huge, seven or eight feet tall, and more than five hundred pounds, he is awfully hard to find. That's because he hates being around humans, believers say. When people such as Devorah go tromping into the woods, Bigfoot runs the other way. He lives in uninhabitable areas, especially around Sabine and Sulphur Rivers, the Big and Little Cypress Bayous, and Caddo Lake where he is affectionately known as the Caddo Critter. We have more swampy areas in East Texas where humans do not live, Devorah said. There's more sightings during the deer season than any other time because people are in the woods. With the advent of ATVs, outdoor enthusiasts can go farther into Bigfoot territory than ever before. In the past decade alone, the Texas Bigfoot Research Center has investigated five sightings in Harrison County, four in Panola County, and three in Russ County. Many of them involved hunters. One Longview man said that he tried to shoot the creature with his twenty-two. It let out a terrifying scream roar, and the squirrel hunter was so frightened he nearly wet himself, he reported. The Longview man's description of Bigfoot reflects many others in East Texas. Long brownish or black hair, the deathly scream-roar or scream-growl, and that stench which Devore believes Bigfoot excretes, possibly from his armpits when he feels threatened. Crystal Steiniger of Harleton says that she has experienced the smell and heard the screams. Steiniger and her colleagues with the East Texas Bigfoot Independent Study get together once a month to look for tracks and hair samples and record Bigfoot's noises on all-night camping trips. They used to attract the creature with Bigfoot calls, but they soon abandoned the calling devices because they made it too aggressive. If they're walking by us, we want to hear their normal, non-threatening type of vocalizations, she said, adding later, I've heard solid screams. I've heard grunts, kind of a grunt growl when you get a little too close. That was one of the best recordings. Of course, we got in our vehicle real quick. We didn't leave, but we got in our vehicle. The researchers have posted many of the recordings on their website, www.easttexasbigfoot.com. With so many reported encounters, skeptics quickly ask for conclusive proof. Hair samples or bones, for example. It's well known and not disputed that we have black bears in East Texas, Devorah counters, 
Nobody's ever seen a body or a skeleton of those. Predators in East Texas, which are numerous, take care of a body almost overnight. There are many theories. One, that they may carry their bodies off. After all, these are groups of them. It's not one lone animal. People have taken pictures of black bears, the skeptics note. One of those skeptics is Charlie Mueller, a Longview-based wildlife biologist for the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. He managed the Cattle Lake Wildlife Area for eight years, and he said he's never seen evidence of Bigfoot's existence. If there's a bear out there, I'm going to find bear tracks. If there's a human out there, I'm going to find footprints, he said. But there's no Bigfoot tracks that I've seen. Mueller said he's studied supposed Bigfoot nests, but to him, they just looked like a pile of branches that had fallen from a tree during an ice storm. People let their imaginations take control a lot of times, and it's easy for someone to point out things that seem to be out of the ordinary that actually are not, he said. But to layman folks, people that don't know a lot about wildlife and the happenings of wildlife in their habitats, a lot of times they don't understand the normal things that go on. Fear of that kind of rebuttal, Devorah and Steinegger say, keeps many witnesses from coming forward. A lot of people will think they're nuts, or if they do mention it to somebody, they'll say, Oh, it was just a bear. You don't know what you're talking about, Steinegger said. They'll kind of blow it off and not take it seriously, because there's been a lot of people who have spent a lot of time out in the woods who have never seen a thing. They're happily trotting along without a clue, says Devor. You're going to be ridiculed. You're thinking you're nuts, so most people are real reluctant to talk. If they are going to speak to you, you've got to be real quiet about it. Of course, being in the club gives me credibility. On the Bayou It was a perfectly clear October afternoon on the bayou, and Charlie Devore sliced his canoe through red and green water, rippling under a light breeze. He had agreed to guide a reporter and photographer to the site of two Bigfoot encounters, that he'd investigated only a half a mile from his house. Because the land had changed hands, the only legal access was via boat, or, in this case, an old canoe. It's better to stick to the water this time of year, anyway, he said, because it's not too smart to traipse through the woods in the middle of deer season. As he guided the canoe, he recalled his first encounter. He hadn't even realized how close he'd come to meeting Bigfoot on that night as he walked the trails near his house. I'd always gone with four dogs, sometimes five, a couple of my own plus the neighbors. These dogs generally were not afraid of anything, he said. When I hit that stench, I looked around for the dogs and realized, hey, I was alone. He whistled and snapped his fingers, but the dogs wouldn't come. They just sat there squirming. I decided the dogs were smarter than me, so I went away, he said. The next night, the same thing. It went on occasionally for six weeks, he said. I wouldn't run into it every night, but it got to be the old hat that when I ran into the stink, I'd just turn around. He questioned hunters and outdoor enthusiasts who suggested that it might have been a wild hog, but DeVore knew better. 
He'd smelled hogs, and it wasn't the same. In 2002, Devorah heard about the annual Texas Bigfoot Conference in Jefferson. This year's event begins at 10 a.m. Saturday at Jefferson High School. Devorah went and then returned to the bayou with some answers and more than a few new questions. After going to that conference and finding out, hey, these things have a stink, I started talking to people who had the stink on them before, he said, and the stink described was just too close to what I had experienced. At that point, I had already gotten curious about them. I talked to dozens of people who had experienced it. But stinking isn't believing, and Devore still hadn't seen one. He gunned the boat into the swamp, past hulking primeval trees and low-lying branches toward Bigfoot. A Close Encounter When the cypress became so thick they crowded out the sun, their reflections vanished from the bayou's surface. The water instantly was black. The canoe, further now from the channel's current, cut through a sheet of scum. Devore talked above the hum of the outboard motor. Suddenly it cut out, and he couldn't get it going again. Unseen crows shrieked in the abrupt silence. Devore took the paddle and rowed through Benton Lake, a small stagnant body of water that adjoined the bayou, until the trees kept him from going any further. Over there, he said, pointing to a spot on the lake's southwestern edge. The witness had been hunting deer as he crouched behind dense brush at mid-afternoon. He reported to the Texas Bigfoot Research Center that he noticed movement in the corner of his eye. Fifty yards away, the hunter told Devore that Bigfoot emerged from the water, stood up, looked side to side, then walked into the woods and disappeared. The hunter watched him for about two minutes. The creature was six feet tall and covered in hair from head to toe, and in the absence of direct sunlight he appeared to be completely black. Devore, having interviewed the hunter several times, deemed him a very credible witness. Finished with his story, Devore docked the canoe on a muddy bank that had built up along the edge of a massive cypress tree and fiddled with the motor. A piece of twine had wrapped itself in the propeller, and after he unwound it, it cranked on the first pole. He ordered the heaviest of his passengers into the bottom of the canoe, stabilizing it, and he took off for home. Though he did not see Bigfoot today, he knew it was only a matter of time. It exists, he said. Too many people have seen it. It exists. Story originally published by the Longview News Journal, Texas. West Ferguson, October 17th, 2004. This is the end of story number two. Story number three. Fort Hall, Bannock County, Idaho, August 2012. A conversation I had. All the activity mentioned is southeast Idaho near Fort Hall, like the camping trip with rocks was around Fort Hall, Idaho, where there is a lot of Bannock and Shoshone Native Americans. Every fall I drive up Highway I-15 from Southern California to Montana 
to hunt with friends there. I tend to find myself stopping in Pocatello, Idaho, for a motel, and also visit a certain bar there. Twice I have run into a man I will call Gary, for this submission is without his knowledge. I had a casual conversation with Gary at the bar in November 2011. Now, before I go on, I want to mention we were drinking beer, and no other kind of liquor is served there. He and I just happened to walk in about the same time and then started talking, so we were not intoxicated. Since I had met him a year prior, I felt like this was an instance of synchronicity, and maybe there was something special that he was about to share with me. So I asked him some questions. Not able to repeat the conversation verbatim, these are the answers and stories I got from him, which I wrote down an hour later when I got back to my motel room. I asked him if he was a Native American. He said yes, half Bannock Indian and a tribal member. His age was early fifties. When I asked him if he had ever seen a Bigfoot, he snapped back a bit and then turned his back to me. I thought to myself, here's another person who might think I'm a nut job. But then Gary turned around slowly, and facing me, he said, Three times, he went on. I grew up in the Fort Hall, Idaho area. My earliest recollection was a camping trip as a small boy in the early 1960s. My father, cousin, and I were walking through a canyon, and Something threw rocks the size of baseballs at us from afar. There was also the sound of timber cracking. My father told us we needed to leave the area, as we are not wanted by the mountain people. We are the Agai people, meaning salmon-eating, and we know all the good salmon runs. Tell me about seeing one. Well, I saw one in the afternoon on a dirt path below me in a small canyon. The Bigfoot was dragging a sagebrush to erase his tracks and conceal his footprints. They will also step on stones when they can to avoid making tracks. Well, you mentioned three sightings you've had. Where? Around Eel River, Trinity Forks, Snake River. Some people ask if they are real, then why are there never any bones found? Do they bury their dead? Yes but in water, weighted down in rivers or ponds with stones. So we are talking about an animal that is shy, clever, and territorial, all signs of intelligent creature. They are more of a spirit than a human. And at this point, Gary seemed to lose interest and change the subject. I sensed the subject of Bigfoot was somewhat taboo for him to tell me about, and not meant for the non-tribal. Todd C. Homer, August 23rd, 2012 That's the end of story number three. Story number four. Kino Hill, Yukon Territory Kino Hill, Yukon Territory, Summer 2000 I'm not sure which summer it was, maybe five, six years back. The wife and I were returning from Kino Hill early one morning. Our coffee thermos was in the back of the truck, 
and it was my fault it was back there. She wanted coffee, so we stopped some miles before Elsa and got out to get the thermos and relieve myself on the side of the road. There was a stand of trees there. I wandered off a ways, walked way up there. I don't know just why I did that. It was there that I seen this bear sitting down at a carcass of elk. Maybe deer. Don't know what that carcass was for sure. Not much left of it. No rack. Mostly a skeleton. Maybe a doe. I'm thinking it was black bear at first sitting down beside the remains. But that be some unusual black bear. Bears usually stand up and tear at their kill and eat it standing up. This bear sat there, pulling at what was left of it. Way off in the distance, there'd be a fox pacing back and forth, awaiting its turn at the kill. And just then, my wife yelled at me to get myself back in the truck. The bear heard her and stood up on two legs, looking in my direction. I fell backwards a bit at its size. By God, I seen it was no bear. I believe it was a bulk, and... It had a piece of something from the carcass clutched in its hand. I don't know what. Looked like weeds. It stood there looking at my direction, and the fox took off at a dead run. The wife yelled again, and this boak started waving its arms up and down, and stomping forward on one leg at me. Damn, I couldn't make these legs of mine move. I seen that it was black, and... It was naked except for hair around the usual male parts, chest, arms, and it was unshaved looking. The beard was long and scraggly with crud and stuff in the whiskers. It took a step to my direction and stomped a foot waving its arms like a crazed man might if he was high on something. I fell back again and started crawling like a baby to the truck on my hands and knees and finally was able to get up and run to the truck. I saw my wife looking big-eyed at me. Behind me on the top of the area where the stand of trees was be that boke, standing watching us get into the truck. We started the engine up and drove off, leaving the damn thermos out in the middle of the road there. My woman is Tashoni, First Nation Canadian, and I am English, and probably Micmac, though... I was raised up an orphan by whites named the Thomas clan in a settlement near Nova Scotia. We married 38 years ago, and her folk know the bulk, but we don't see any in our lifetime until that day. I was never taught about bulks. My woman told me what her people know. It was a shock to both of us. The bulk is a strange marvel. Yes, it is a strange sight. The wife says it is good to see one. I don't know how good having the shit scared out of me can be a great blessing, but she says so, and I listened. We don't speak about this much. The wife is still mad at me because I lost the thermos of coffee. I could have been killed, and she would still be mad about the thermos. We don't own a computer. My friend here at the petrol stop looked up and found your website listed, so we tell you about this incident. About the bulk, we are not sure on height. I was in shock when it stood up full size and not thinking clearly, but I know it was maybe eight feet up and features fitting to its size. 
At the time, it could have been ten feet tall, for all I noted. I don't know what it weighed. I didn't stop to ask, ha-ha, but it was sturdy, stocky, and plenty of bulk. I weigh 240 pounds, and a mid-sized man. The bulk must weigh double what I weigh. There was no sound except the stomping sound. No smell. Was black, and had whiskers and long straight hair like woman down its back and shoulders, black like shiny. There was nothing else around but a pacing fox. Nothing else I can think of. I was sure it was a black bear before it stood up and started waving its arms and stomping. My God, I get hair on my neck when I think about it. My wife said the boke is leftovers from cast-out Indian tribe. Most was killed or run off. Not many left since white men came here, and what's left is scattered and shy. They tell me the boke is skilled hunter and opportunist that works mostly after dark of nightfall. Leonard Jack Thomas Edited for Readability and Logged, April 2005 This is the end of story number four. Story number five. Broward County, Alligator Alley, Florida, 1960. It all happened in August of 1960. I was 12 years old. I was with my mother and stepfather on a vacation trip to South Florida. It was my first trip away from home. We lived in a small town, Longwood, north of Orlando, and this trip was about all we could afford for a week. I remember we headed down the east coast through Palm Beach, Fort Lauderdale, and on to Miami, and all the way to Key West. No interstates in Florida back then. Once we came back to the mainland, we went to the Miami Zoo one morning, and then headed west on Alligator Alley through the Everglades to Naples. It is very hot and humid in South Florida, compared to the rest of Florida, since it is in a subtropic zone. The car was not air-conditioned. I remember sitting in the back seat with my head close to the window to catch the wind. That is when I spotted it. It was standing, facing the highway, in front of a small hammock of knee-high grass, palmetto shrubs, and a few pine and palm trees, about 150 feet from the road. We locked eyes for the entire duration of the sighting. I can remember flipping back in the seat and watching it through the rear window until I couldn't see it any longer. It was not massive, but not thin, tall, maybe seven feet, medium brown, the color of a coconut. I could not see the feet or knees, no neck. I do not remember any facial feature other than dark eyes, and I did not see a profile. It turned its upper body as it stared, not its head. No odor. I did not say a word since it did not strike me as being unusual. We had just come from the Miami Zoo, and this was my first trip from home, and I had seen all kinds of strange animals for the first time that morning. This memory is so specific. When we arrived in Naples, I can recall swimming in the pool at the motel and thinking how hot that animal must be in all that heat with all that fur. The words Bigfoot and Sasquatch were unknown back then. 
I don't recall giving any thought to this creature until the 70s, when my son and I watched a show called In Search Of. Then I was so busy with work, home and family, and doing things for my husband's company, I didn't find the time to go to the library and research the subject. It crossed my mind briefly back in the mid-80s after a TV show, but nothing seriously. Obviously, this was all prior to easy access to any topic on an in-home computer. Then I watched A Monster Quest back in the first of 2008 and googled Bigfoot after that show. A whole new world opened up. Most of the sightings of Bigfoot in Florida are in Collier County, Everglades, there is one report on another database very similar to mine concerning some college kids heading to Miami on the same road and seeing a Bigfoot watch them go by from a hammock. Alligator Alley to native Floridans is two-lane State Road 41 from Naples to Miami, not Interstate 75. It was also known as the Tamiami Trail. Lynn Chandler, Destin, Florida. That's the end of story number five. Story number six. Bigfoot Creatures Photographed in California's Sierra National Forest. July 28, 2009. The Bigfoot creature may have been captured on a remote trail camera placed in the Sierra National Forest based on photography evidence released by Sanger Paranormal Society. Investigator Jeffrey Gonzalez said Tuesday night that multiple cameras were put in place in this remote area on Memorial Day weekend and retrieved on June 7, 2009. Gonzalez said they did not immediately see the evidence, but upon closer inspection noticed what appears to be the Bigfoot creature. Gonzalez said a group returned to the site to review the exact capture spot after many theories surfaced once the original image was released in early July. The tree stump theory was ruled out, he said, because the dark object is not there. Gonzalez said the bear theory does not stand up either because the image does not have a snout on the head. You can see features of a human face such as the nose, mouth, and chin, Gonzalez reports. The arms on a bear when standing do not hang that far down. We also took measures on how high this thing was. According to the leaves and the branches that were covering the object's face, the tape measure said it was between eight and nine feet tall. The same camera that took the picture of the object also took pictures of other objects, such as black bear and deer, which does not resemble the object in any way. Photo, Jeffrey Gonzalez standing in the same spot as the object in the image. Gonzalez said that Bigfoot investigator David Ragoza has been visiting this location for six years after an elderly Native American pointed it out to him. He told David that this spot in the forest was sacred Indian land and that weird things happen here. He said David has had many individual sightings and has collected footprints, but has never captured anything with the camera until now. Returning to the exact spot where the image was captured, Gonzalez said that the angle of the hill was 45 degrees, which would make it difficult for a bear to stand upright. 
He also said the object was clearly brown in color, ruling out the black bear. The Bigfoot creature has been reported in many different parts of the country during the 20th century, including an outbreak during 1973 and 74, primarily in southwestern Pennsylvania, and investigated by Stan Gordon. During that period, hundreds of Bigfoot sightings were reported, as well as hundreds of UFO reports. No photographic evidence exists from that time although Gordon collected many footprints in that region. Aside from this single image, Gonzalez points out that there were three additional images taken several days earlier near midnight, where a bright light lit up the area. His group cannot account for how this happened, except that they are all ruling out a flashlight as the source of the light in the images. Examiner.com Photos, Jeffrey Gonzalez and Dave Ragoza Comments I don't believe the Ragoza photo of the Bigfoot shape is anything more than a naturally occurring shadow or dark spot on the background tree, and here's why. The photo of the Bigfoot and the subsequent photo of the man are clearly taken from different angles. The first photo was taken from a position considerably to the right of the position from which the second photo was taken. This is made most evident by the fact that the tree against which the man is framed is not even visible in the original photo. I've highlighted some of the most prominent visual landmarks in each photo. The Bigfoot figure in red, as you can see, it's still there in the second photo, but cropped so that only the front of the figure is visible. The leaves of what appear to be a vine maple in green higher and to the right of the second photo from their position in the original, the large tree to the left in purple, notice how no part of it is obscured by leaves in the second photo, and the line of bark texture on the foreground tree in blue. In the original photo, this line is well on the left side of the tree trunk, and the second photo, it is almost centered. I think that if one were to return to that spot, and really line up one's camera to the position from which the original photo was taken, one would see the Bigfoot standing there. It's too bad the photos are too small. If they were larger and clearer, I believe the discrepancies between them would be more evident. Seeing may be believing, but it's not always the truth. Randy Stradley, September 7, 2009 This ends the reading of the six stories. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.